Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I'm Connor O'Gara. Will, uh, in case for those who are listening to this can't tell, I am, I'm playing hurt today. I'm playing hurt mm-hmm. today. Fire up the Ed, Reach, Ed Reed speech. I'm hurt, dog. Don't ask me if I'm all right. That that right there just just physically hurt me by by saying mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah, not great. Daycare germs have gotten the best of me, and uh, yeah, I realize that on sound as good as I possibly can. But why do we power through? We power through because week five is here. Mm-hmm. Seven games in the SEC, all conference matchups. Did you know? Fun fact: this weekend and week eleven, those are the only two weekends where that's the case, where we just have no bye weeks, no non-conference mm-hmm. games, just seven SEC football games, all SEC competition. That's these, these are the the weekends. I know I said it last week too, because week four, the slate was so good, but you know what? Mm -hmm. These are also the weekends that we think about in the middle of May where we're like, I would do anything for a great weekend of college football. This weekend will be great. Not necessarily that one massive headliner matchup in the sec, a lot of really good matchups in the sec. So we're going to dig into all those, obviously great show today, fun interview coming up with Brandon Copeland, who played in the in the NFL for about a decade. He is now one of the founders of athletes.org. So we talk about that, some NIL stuff, some financial literacy in college sports, a lot more Love stuff that. with him. Yeah. Really, so how really many chains can I buy if I were to get an NIL deal over he, under two? Uh, he did bring up the subject of spending money on chains and jewelry. Mm, funny, funny. You, you should ask that. I don't think we have a definitive answer to that just yet. Uh, it's closer to zero than you think though. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do uh, Bold and Brash and Lad of the Week. So let's let's dig right into the Week 5 slate. Number 22, Florida against Kentucky. Kentucky's a one-and-a-half-point favorite. The best over-under that I'm going to give all day. You know what it is. The over-under is 61,000 cold beers consumed by fans attending this football game. Okay. That is the Kroger Field capacity where alcohol can finally be sold. Big revelation in Lexington this year. Many fans are very pleased about that. I realize the average of one beer per person doesn't really sound like a lot, but then when you factor in the under 21 crowd and the, this is a noon kick, it makes sense. Mm. Mark Stoops, in case he didn't see this this week, uh, he was asked about this being a noon kick for the Florida game. And if he was worried about that, and he said his response was, quote, I have great confidence in the people of Kentucky who can get up early who can get up very early, rather, and pound some beers. Why would oh, yeah. you disrespect the great people of the Commonwealth? Big Blue Nation, man. That's a, they're a real thing. They're a force. They're, they, will be, uh, they will be drinking some cold beers, probably just increased that intake by, I don't want to say 200%, but like by 150%. That was just increased because of Mark Stoops' encouraging words. Very encouraging. You know what they should do at Kroger Field? They should just have a beer aisle, like straight transplanted from a Kroger, and you could just go in and grab your beer. That would be a fire activation. I don't know if you're allowed to do that because of the bottles. I think that's the issue. Yeah, I know. Stupid red tape and stuff, just preventing us from doing anything fun. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. But I think that that would be probably shut down with, some something related to the bottles. That's what it always seems to come back to. Uh, but yeah, it's weird that this game is not at night. 2020 wasn't at night, but 2020, just everything felt weird. So I don't really think that counts. Um, mm-hmm. It just feels like this is a night game where weird stuff happens. And usually that weird stuff benefits Florida. That's the way that this matchup has gone uh, pre-2018. And obviously that's no longer the case. Well, we're living in a world in which Kentucky can have a three-game winning streak against Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Last Kentucky coach to win three in a row against Florida, some guy by the name of Paul Bear Bryant. You might have heard of him. Every good Kentucky stat is just Paul Bear Bryant. It's crazy. It's, it's Paul Bear Bryant or it's the Jimmy Carter administration. That's it. Yep. That, that's that's what it all comes back to. I am old enough to remember when the 2018 Kentucky team was just trying to beat Florida for the first time since not the Jimmy Carter administration, the Ronald Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. By the way, our guy, Jimmy Carter, I checked up on this today. Just had to make sure. Just Good. had to make sure. Mm-hmm. If we get cold takes on this, I'm going to be so upset. I'm going to be so upset. Jimmy Carter will turn 99 years young on Sunday. Home hospice care. Lad of the century is on the table for him because he's mm-hmm. been here for basically this whole century. Um, I bet Georgia Next. fan Jimmy Carter. Uh, I, I bet that he is going to be at home, probably locked into this game on his birthday weekend because the winner of this game will feel like, hey, we're the biggest threat to take down Georgia at 2-0 and in conference play with that game still on the schedule. I'm not as sold as Jimmy Carter might be on that. And by the way, those were my awards, not his. Um, I think both of these teams, while they might feel good after a win, I think they have some obvious flaws that could surface even in a winning effort in this game. Kentucky's flaw. The offense choppier than what the raw number would probably suggest. Kentucky doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like it has a top 25 scoring offense in part because when you've got four non-offensive touchdowns through the first four weeks of the season. Yeah. um, That's, that's going to help you. That's going to help you a lot. So if you average that out again, one non-offensive touchdown per week, you take 10, you take seven points off of Kentucky's weekly average drops to about 31 points per game. That's pretty mediocre. Nationally speaking. That's why it kind of feels like a mediocre offense so far. But one of the reasons why Kentucky has gotten off to a 4-0 start against lesser competition with an average margin of victory of three touchdowns is because of its positive, explosive play margin. Seth Mm -hmm. Emerson wrote a really interesting piece on that for The Athletic and how Kirby studies that a lot more than, than turnover margin and why the ability to create explosive plays and stop explosive plays is probably the better barometer for success that turnover margin. Like, look at Kentucky. This season, 28 scrimmage plays of 20 yards. And defensively, they've only allowed 14. So on average, they have twice as many explosive plays as their opponents. You'll take that all day, every day. That's why you're able to win and get to 4-0 as comfortably as Kentucky have, even as, as comfortably as Kentucky has, even if it hasn't looked particularly good the entire time. I wonder if Austin Armstrong, against that Kentucky offensive line, if he dials up some unique looks that puts Devin Leary in some uh, suboptimal spots. I could see that happening in this one. Florida had that awful start against Utah in the opening drive, right? Like where they just come out and Utah is like, bang, just like that 75-yard touchdown, whatever it was. But Florida's only allowed 10 scrimmage plays of 20 yards this season. That's really good. Really, really good. The question I have is whether Florida can get those explosive plays on offense. Only 10 plays of 20 yards this season. That's number 92 in FBS. They don't have that positive margin with explosive play rate. I would assume that we're going to see a lot of Kentucky breakout star Maxwell Harrison lined up across from Ricky Pearsall. So this could be an instance where you need Graham Mertz to find other options to win this game. And ah, if I'm a Florida fan, I don't feel great about that. I, I really don't. Even though we like the run, de- the, the the running game with ETN, with when Johnson. they're using the correct running back, this has got to be a bit. It's dude, the Florida running backs have got to be a bit. I'm convinced. Every game, I'm just like, could y'all just give the ball to the good guy, please? I will defend Napier for the lack of ETN touches last week, just because. Oh yeah. 
of what of what the competition was, knowing that you're going to have a really tough Kentucky run defense. You just gave him by far career high in carries. So you want to make sure that he's right. You don't want to just throw him back out there for 25 carries against Charlotte when you when you shouldn't have to, in theory. So like not a rest day per se, but if that was some of the logic that went into that decision-making, why that carry distribution worked out the way that it did, it wouldn't surprise me. I would expect they're going to try and re- lean on him a lot. The problem yeah. for Florida, Kentucky's 10th in the country in rushing, in rushing defense. Number one in the SEC in both rushing yards per game allowed and rushing yards per carry allowed. That's pretty good. So I see Graham Mertz having to figure things out in some of those third and eight, third and nine type situations. I don't think this is a particularly pretty game. I, I don't. I, I don't think we leave this game thinking, wow, the team who wins this, watch out, Georgia. Watch out, Jimmy mm-hmm. Carter. You're going to be in trouble. I, I think it's – sorry. We just can't stop bringing up Jimmy Carter. He's the best. Mm-hmm. Sloppy, low score. As game. a person, not a political figure because we do not do politics in this podcast. But as a lad, we are very pro-Jimmy Carter. No, Jimmy Carter, we're, we're just speaking in terms of a lad. Don't don't somebody yes. tell me that he's the worst president ever. That's not what I'm saying. Just strictly, Delete your one-star review about interest rates. We don't care. We're going to tell you right now. We don't, don't care. care. <laughs> don't care. Uh, but, yeah, I think Kentucky wins this 20-17. to 17. Really low scoring. Maybe the only thing sloppier than this game is Kentucky fans getting after it for a noon kick against Florida. Yeah, 100%. I'm so fascinated by this matchup. This is like truly, to me, kind of a pick'em game. And obviously, if you remember last year, Florida had beaten Utah. They were ranked you know, as highly as they would get that season. And then obviously, the Dane Key play, which was like one of the big moments of Kentucky's career, kind of broke that game open for them, or Kentucky season, I mean. And so, yeah, I, I think that... Um, I feel kind of bad because I picked against Florida last week and they obviously proved me wrong. Um, but I do think Charlotte or you oh, yeah, two, 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 we didn't, you're right. We didn't preview that game, but yeah. And, and to clarify there, yeah, I think that was perfect use of ETN against Charlotte. Cause you shouldn't need them. It's like a win is a win. I'm not the guy who sits here and like d- digs into these like random non-conference things. Like I just don't care because I care how you're going to be against good teams. And we've talked about that with so many, you know, Notre Dame, Ohio State, USC, where it's like, yeah, you're running up 70 on these guys. So the way that you beat Charlotte has never affected me as, as a, even like when Georgia's done that, I'm like, okay. And they're probably hiding the good plays, um, which as they're, and this is what smart coaches do with a guy like ETN. So yeah, I think that this is an amazing, you know, matchup for both sides. I'm so fascinated with like Maxwell versus Pearsall. We've talked about over and over again, like Pearsall is a guy that we've been on since last year. Um, it's so funny to like kind of see our guys coming up this year, but that's a guy that, I mean, you saw the catch against Charlotte. He's, I, I think he's going to be I, – I don't want to be like the guys in the Colorado game, but I, I think he has shown NFL ability, and he's a guy that I don't think was talked about a lot in that context. But I think that when you're a receiver and you can just catch the ball anywhere near you, you know, that's that's a huge – that's a skill set. And that obviously heavily contributes to the high completion percentage that Florida fans keep talking about. And that being said, we are talking – would you say that he's the best corner in the SEC right now? Uh, it's – I mean – only player in college football with multiple pick sixes. Take pick sixes for what they are. Three interceptions of the year. He's played really, really well. Mm-hmm. He hasn't played against a guy as good as Pearsall. That's for right. darn sure. And look, I, I respect the Vandy receivers. I've talked up Jaden McGowan. I've talked up Will Shepard. I've, I've you know, given those guys their praise. Uh, Pearsall's a different cat. And for mm-hmm. those who think, oh, this is just like some slot guy, some, some gadget player, he's not. He mm-hmm. lines up all over the place. You see the catch that he made last week. He is so ridiculously athletic. He's kind of bigger than people give him credit for, too. Um, this is a really tough matchup. I don't 
I don't think you can definitively say that Maxwell Harrison is the best corner in the SEC based on the competition that he's played so far. I don't think that's a fair thing to say. Um, But he has probably played the best so far, and he has had the biggest impact at the cornerback position of any SEC corner to date. Yeah, and there's definitely like two types of corner, right? You have like your um, Darrell Revis, who was like, oh, they just didn't throw it that way. So we had no stats because it was like, oh, half the field just cut off. Revis is over there. If you try him, it's going to be incompletion, a waste of both of our time. And then you have like the old school Deion Sanders, who's like, please throw to me. I'm going to give this guy such a cushion and I'm just going to take off and pick it off. And so, yeah, there's things to that. But to your point, sometimes you would rather have the shutdown guy against a guy like Pearsall who just eliminates him out of the game and makes you go to your second and third option uh, because you can't always count on a pick six. So yeah, not, not splitting hairs on that, but I think that, you know, this is going to be that game for um, Max Wilson to make a ton of money, you know, against one of these like legit ACC receivers. Um, So anyway, I I think that that, that's kind of a one V one wash in Florida's offense. And then, yeah, I think that ETN and the running game uh, versus that D line, I think it's going to be a huge matchup. So, um, I do want I do want to go Kentucky here, but I want to say that like I'm seeing some good stuff from Florida. Like I am seeing stuff that is genuinely making me feel like Florida is on a track that is going somewhere. Um, I just think that you know we talked about with continuity with guys in the system. You know this is a this is um, a Mark Stoops coach like football team that doesn't like they don't feel the same stigma with Florida that you know previous administrations did. So they're actually kind of the big guys on the block, and I think it would mean a lot for Florida to beat this team that they used to handle so easily. And they've already beaten Tennessee. You know, if they can beat Kentucky and get them back to the two games that we always joked about, Florida will always have an even record in the SEC East because they'll always beat these two teams. So if they reestablish that as a Florida fan, you're so excited because you know if you can sweep those two teams and just kind of like maybe go back and forth with Georgia every once in a while, you know, the East is no longer a thing. But in terms of your rivalries, the teams that you care about, um, that would be massive. So I think this is actually a really big time game in a positive way for Billy Napier because if he loses this game, it doesn't really change my opinion of him. But if he wins it, now you're starting to string together wins. Now you're starting to bounce back from the Utah loss as opposed to last year where they never really got the mojo back after they slumped midseason. Kentucky fans are going to feel like crap if they lose this game. Yep. Because because of this. We talked about we ad nauseum how the schedule ends, right? But Kentucky has this thing working against it, and I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that that Kentucky fans are, are fair weather or anything like that. But this is this is an issue that Mark Stoops goes up against every single year. If you, after the four-week stretch in which I think there are, there are plenty of Kentucky fans who are just more so in wait-and-see mode. It's not that they think the sky is falling, but it's more wait-and-see mode. This is a team that clearly has some issues. They are not a juggernaut yet. There's a reason why Kentucky is not in the top 25 yet. If you lose this game to Florida at home in what's easily your toughest game so far of this season, you know what awaits. You also run the risk of potentially feeling really dejected by the time that basketball calendar rolls around. And I know Kentucky fans, there are the like if you if you took a, a straw poll of Kentucky fans, Mark Stoops or John Calipari, Mark Stoops winning that battle every time. Okay. Oh yeah. He, he is at, at this stage of the game. But if this game turns into more of the same and it's Florida horror stories all over again, and oh crap, we're definitely not going to be competing in the East, that that remaining schedule gets so much more daunting. Yeah, you gotta feel, you gotta feel like okay, we at least have a chance to keep our head above water at six and one going into that Georgia game. That's your or not going into that Georgia game, going into that last 
those last five games because obviously yep. Georgia's before that. So I think that's the thing that Kentucky's working against. But I'm excited for this matchup. Florida Kentucky is one of the most underrated SEC rivalries. It, it has been bananas fun for the last what six yeah six years it's been kind of crazy mm-hmm. kind of unpredictable weird things happen hopefully weird things happen in this one and six and a half point favorite against arkansas the over under i have i tweaked my over under it was originally going to include a certain connor wigman we're going to get to him in a second mm. the over under i have is 0.5 snaps for rocket sanders i'm going to take the under i this is going to sound weird and it's going to sound like i'm a rocket hater or that i'm a PFF running backs don't matter guy. And I'm not, <laughs> I I don't know that it matters that much if he's out there or not for this game with. So with, with, with rocket, I just don't have confidence in Arkansas's ground game to be able to create running lanes. When yep. you saw how bad it was in that season opener and yeah, they were improved last week against LSU. Dominion was able to get going a little bit. I'm going to get into some of the LSU rushing stats that are kind of glaring and why that mm-hmm. might be more of an LSU thing than an Arkansas. I was thing. about to say, I don't think I think KJ just put the team on his back. I mean, LSU's pass rush and their and their push was awesome, but yep. they didn't have gap discipline. And so at the end of the day, if you just have a well coached D line that and 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 KJ had these massive effects with his legs, but yeah, I think that might be what the rushing attack comes down to, especially with that rocket. Is just KJ. Leor Jenkins. Yeah, like I, I just, I just don't know that the tailback for Arkansas matters that much right now. I, I, right. I, just, I just don't like A and M's got an improved run defense. So like trotting out Rocket for when he's still working his way back from injury, he's going to be just running into three yards in a cloud of dust. I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the game plan that is going to make or break this one. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, on the A and M side, Billy Lucci was first to report this. Connor Wigman going to be out for the season, it appears, with a broken bone in his foot. That sucks. It sucks. And I'll get to the good. I'll get to the good. But I'm bummed because this was such a pivotal year for him and his development overall. And it does make me kind of worried about his future, knowing that as he's making this progress and as he's starting to show signs of being that guy that A&M fans hoped and thought he could be, you're missing out on valuable reps. And, and I do think an injury can definitely change the course of your career, especially when it happens that that, that second year and, and what it could mean for you as a player, just to be able to see the game a little bit slower. And that's, that's frustrating as someone who was, uh, I, I think if I wasn't leading the Wigman bandwagon, I was certainly in the passenger seat, wasn't in the back mm-hmm. seat. I was up there. I was saying, Hey, get out of the way. More people. You want to come on board? Connor Wigman's a stud. He's, he's looking like that guy. And for him to be out, uh, it, it, it's it's a massive, massive bummer for A and M. That's the bad news, right? And and I will say too, like with him, it's it, this is a guy. And as much as like I joke about A and M and all the money and the recruits and everything, I mean, this is a guy that had a really you know rocky start to his college career with the way that last season went, with the fact that he was having to like wasn't even really planned or prepared to play last year, wasn't supposed to play last year, and then everybody gets hurt. Your receivers are in and out of the lineup. Your OC is – we're not going to talk about him because he's also your head coach. But now, you know, you finally got the Robert Patrick stuff going on. You finally have a team that is using these two great receivers. You finally – you know, your tight ends are starting to develop. The O-line's playing well. Even without A-chain, they can run the ball a little bit. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, this, this, the scene was so set for Wigman to be this guy who's there for a couple of years building something at A&M. And, yeah, now to your point, it's like, well, what's next for him? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think he comes back and he's he's the guy and he's the expectation, yeah. but it's the second time in, in three years that A&M is losing a starting quarterback to injury 
in the month of September to yep. a season-ending injury. And look, nobody's ever going to feel bad for AM with those resources. Right. They're not. Um, I'm still of the belief that even though Haynes King wasn't really was really good in the five quarters that he played a couple of years ago, I think his development could have been different if he obviously would have been able to stay healthy for that full year, even though he was in a, a system that we look back on now and say, yeah, yeah, probably not ideal for him. But Wigman didn't have the system limitations. And you, you wonder kind of what his potential would have been this year, or at least I find myself wondering that. But the good news for a mm-hmm. might have the best backup quarterback situation in the SEC. If oh my gosh, now their backup's better than LSU's back. Look at this. Look, I'm not saying... <laughs> Look at this. Here's, here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. I looked at all the backup quarterbacks in the SEC today, mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, okay, there are four quarterbacks in the SEC listed as QB2 right now who are who can say, yes, I've started multiple games in the SEC. I love Garrett Nussmeyer. You know I love Garrett Nussmeyer. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say that it's automatically the best backup quarterback situation in the SEC. I should say it's the most comforting backup yep. quarterback situation in the SEC. That's probably a better way to phrase it because I think Nussmeyer obviously has more upside. Like I don't, I don't really question that. And it's ironic because obviously Max Johnson used to be at LSU in a quarterback mm-hmm. room with Garrett Nussmeyer. But both of them about, committing the funniest turnovers you'd ever see. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Different players, different players for sure, but very funny turnover guys. Um, and, and you look around the rest of the SEC and – all these different programs who might have you might have excitement about your backup. If you're a Georgia fan, you're mm-hmm. excited about Brock Vandegrift. Guy's got 13 career passes. If you're a Tennessee yep. fan, you're excited about Nico Iyama Leava. Mm-hmm. Guy's still waiting to make an impact. He's still a true freshman. Ty Simpson at Alabama. Okay, that second half against USF, not ideal. So, like a lot of these teams. You look up South and down. South Carolina, your backup is a starting wide receiver, so you can't get excited about him because you need to catch a, the ball. The South Carolina fans are going to hate that you said that because Lenora <laughs> Sellers, they are very high on, even though, like, okay, but still, that's another example. You might be high on a true freshman. Guys only right. played against FCS competitions. Like, mm-hmm. let's let's look at this objectively and say, okay, look at all these backup quarterback situations in the SEC right now. Mike Wright, uh, Rob, Mike Wright at Mississippi State, Robbie Ashford, you've got at, at Auburn. We're going to talk a little bit more about him um, in mm-hmm. the, the Georgia. Spencer Sanders, Auburn. I think, is probably right there, yeah. Spencer Sanders, another guy. There, this, mm-hmm. There's still the what if, though, of like, what if it just doesn't look good against SEC competition? Like, yep. what, what if it just doesn't? And Ken Seals at Vandy, that's the other guy who has multiple starts. Backup yep. quarterback situations in college football are bad. They, they just are. Max Johnson, we know who Max Johnson is at this stage of his career. There are not a whole lot of guys that you could be like, oh, yeah, 25 to 6 TD to INT ratio against SEC mm-hmm. competition, 42 to 7, I think, career TD to INT ratio with over 4,000 passing yards at this level. A guy who has seen this division, who has faced the speed of the SEC West, where you could just turn to that guy and you could just turn to him and say, hey, keep this offense afloat. That's mm-hmm. that's I think the the assuring the reassuring thing for A and M despite the fact that this is obviously a really significant injury. I also had this thought, and it excited me a little bit. What if because we know Max Johnson, the knock against him kind of locks in on that one guy. Kayshawn Booty was that guy for him at LSU. What if Evan Stewart is to Max Johnson what Kayshawn Booty was to his buddy LSU Max Johnson, his best friend, his best man. Yeah, just like, hey, I trust you. No matter where you are, go make a play. I'm going to force feed you targets. And you didn't really do that in in, in the in the 
in, in a game last week against Auburn. Like mm-hmm. I think Stewart ended with like three catches. Obviously, he had the play of the day that that catch in the end zone was just unbelievable throw and catch. But you know, I I just kind of wonder, you know. What exactly this offense is going to look like, and if it is going to take a significant step back, I don't think it will because of the scheme. I think I think mm-hmm. it should be all right because of the scheme, because of the weapons. I-, I wonder too if you know Max Johnson looks at what his former team LSU did to that Arkansas secondary, mm-hmm. um, and he's like, okay, I c- I can make some plays. I can attack this defense. The pass defense for Arkansas, it isn't basura like it was last year. Um, but as we saw, you can still attack. You can still have success against this group. They're not going to go win you a football game, probably. That's just not mm-hmm. who they are at this stage. Um, last week at at LSU, I thought Sam Pittman had kind of a Toby Keith first half. A little bit. A little bit. This week, he spoke pretty candidly about mental health, getting off Twitter, trying to block out the noise on social media, all those different things. Um, and Pittman's situation, separate to what I'm, I'm going to bring up here. But it is interesting how the more you hear coaches say, we got to block out the noise, you know, Dan Lanning and Ryan Day, and you hear them talk in the pregame about how much they got to block out the noise. The more you hear them do that, the more they seem to actually be using the noise as fuel. And you're like, wait a minute. So you, you said you're not one for, 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 no, for outside noise, and then you just made an entire pregame motivation plan based on outside noise. Okay, cool. That's got it. Makes sense. Um, look, Connor, I don't since really... you're under the weather, I won't do the Ryan Day voice again. But yes, he was also furious at Lou Holtz after the game, so he can't say that. Yeah, the Ryan Day voice was like, what? Where, where's Sorry. this octave you're reaching? Not you. Mm-hmm. I'm saying Ryan Day. Like, that was, I don't think the best look. I, I just don't. Sorry. <laughs> think what you want about Lou Holtz. I, whatever. Um, I don't think Arkansas is kind of into this us against the world mentality yet, because while I think Sam Pittman, he has taken a good amount of heat so far. I think a lot of people are still in his corner, want him to succeed. But at the same time, one in six in his last seven, one score games, Mm -hmm. that includes two consecutive weeks of one score losses. History says that despite the 10 and one A&M advantage, since the Aggies joined the sec in this matchup, this game probably going to come down to the wire. Arkansas is probably going to find a way to blow it. That's what history says. Six of those 10 A&M wins against Arkansas were one-score games. Think about that. That this this rivalry is a lot closer than what that would that record would indicate. And I feel like I say that every single year, but with the way that this game could play out, I think we will see that again. I'll say that A&M wins 31-28 a game in which Max Johnson makes enough plays and it's a last minute drive from KJ that ends with him trying to convert on like fourth and 22 after he takes two sacks. That's how I see us playing out. Yeah. Um, a hundred percent. I'll start with AM stuff. By the way, can I ask you something? Can I ask you something? I think you've said, yeah, hundred percent after like 10 of the last like 12 breakdowns that I've done. I just next time, just say like 95%, 95%. Yeah. Like 95%. I'm there. I'm there with you. Yeah, I'm I'm mostly there with you. Um, there we go. Uh, and in this essay, I will know. But I think um, with A and M, we start with the A and M side of it is basically Max Johnson's super fun, you know. And I'm the guy who usually when guys transfer off my team, a la Eli Ricks, they're you know I they're dead, dead to, to me. You. 
Yes, Max Johnson's a guy who I've always had love for, uh, you know, and obviously they have a lot to, they're not as panicked as a lot of fan bases would be, given that when Max Johnson came in that game, he completely flipped the script. You know, his first five attempts were completions for two touchdowns. He was out there just slinging it in a game that, as we talked about, Wigman, you know, couldn't really move the ball as well. So I think that already they're not, they're not in panic mode the way they were, you know, last year or in years past when guys have gone down. But I will say this um, about Max, a couple of things that are interesting about him. So he's 6'6". Huge. Uh, he's, he's also six. He's massive. Yeah, he's he's, he's big as heck. Um, it's and I saw it on the broadcast and I went. I always forget this about him. Left-hander, obviously. But the thing about him that's interesting is how like um I and I hate the term like sneaky athletic, but he is actually mobile. Um, and so that's a great backup quarterback because as I always talk about, I love a mobile quarterback for the fact that when it's third and two and everybody's covered or you don't really know what to do, you can just take off and if you're six six, you fall down, you get a first down. We've seen it over and over again. So I think that that's a dream guy to manage your offense, um, especially with Robert Patrick, who can start to maybe put in some of that stuff now that he knows that Max Johnson is the guy for this season. Um, also, just a fun fact, if you guys, uh, A&M fans, have not gotten acquainted with Brad Johnson, his dad, look up Big Bad Brad. Sort of goes by on socials. He makes TikToks and stuff. He's just dude rock type of guy. So you guys are going to have a lot of fun with Max Johnson. Um, and, yeah, I think that the, the A&M thing, you know, their defense looked terrible against Miami, but I've been buying Tyler Van Dyke as long as, long as I could. Um, so I'm not really going to say that means anything for SEC play quite yet. Um, and, but I also will not say their defense was as good as it looked against Auburn because that's not quite an SCT team. Yes, yet. agreed. So I think somewhere in the middle, if we're shooting for eight and four, I think I think Mac Johnson might be able to get you there, especially considering you're starting with Auburn. Now that being said, unfortunately for Sam Pittman, I'm I'm right there with you. And and I'll be clear, if they got the ball back at the end of that game, they would have scored and won. So I think, despite Brian Kelly with this very weird panic timeout management at the end of that game, I I do think that the boys are playing hard for Sam Pittman despite all the issues. But to your point, you know, when all these losses start racking up you know that becomes harder and harder and i do think that a&m with all the talent with all the receivers they have the ability to exploit arkansas's two biggest weaknesses which are o-line play um and db play like we saw it last game and maybe there's some other stuff in there but db play i think when you give up 300 to two different receivers you probably have some db play issues as great as those guys are and you know that's the thing a&m has probably the second best set of two receivers with juice wells on the shelf so those two guys We've seen what uh, two number one receivers can do against the secondary. So, yeah, I actually kind of like A&M big in this one, to be honest with you. Um, I, I I think that, you know, this has been a weird rivalry, but like you said, it's been a little bit one-sided. And I think that they have, were able to make the plays when it counted uh, last year, and this year their offense is completely better, even with, you know, uh, I mean, their quarterback situation might, might even be better than it was at this point last year simply because they have Bobby Petrino. Do Okay, do I have permission to blow your mind? Please. Do you know how many years of eligibility Max Johnson has left after this year? Oh, gosh. I, is, it, is it two? It's two, Will. Oh, my gosh. Because I was thinking about what's what's best case scenario for how this goes and why didn't that guy leave, right? Because mm-hmm. he could have, in theory, transferred. Um, I, I don't know what the Power 5 market would have looked like for him. I think given what we've seen from him in the past, he wouldn't have had a clear path to a starting job at the Power 5 level or – um, it would have been like a Haynes King type situation where it's like mm-hmm. a, you know, a pretty late into camp type battle. And I was thinking about this. I was like, what's, what's the ideal plan for A&M, right? Like what is Max Johnson now steps into this role, sets himself up for success, then probably like leaves A&M if he does well mm-hmm. enough to be able to get an opportunity elsewhere. Connor Waverman comes back and becomes the guy. Like 
there's probably a very narrow path for that to happen and for all those boxes to be checked and for all parties to be fully on board with that. Uh, because if he plays really well and this offense puts up 35 points a game this year, people are going to say, make Max Johnson the guy. He's got two years of eligibility left. Like he's going to be, right. he's going to be good. But that's probably, if you're an AM fan, what you're hoping to be able to see. Because it's not like Wickman tore his ACL, right? It's not like he's going to be out all spring. Like it's yep. a three and a half month injury. That's what's been, that's what's been reported by Billy Lucci. And so like in theory, he should be back for spring. Who knows? Maybe he'll even play in a bowl game or something like that. Um, but just something that, that I, I think is really interesting that everybody has eligibility. And if you don't think that someone has eligibility, just look a little bit deeper and they probably do mm-hmm. multiple years of eligibility. All right, Georgia 14 and a half point favorite against Auburn. The over under I have, I think the under is going to hit on this 10 Peyton Thorne pass attempts. Watch out. They're getting spicy out there. 10 attempts. It might be Robbie Ashford time on the planes. Come on. It might now. Be. It might be, or at least it might be for this game. It could be. Why do I say that? Because the fact that the forward pass, I think reverted back, I don't want to say 10 years, 20 years, it reverted back a century with what Auburn did last weekend at Kyle Field. Um, That was Peyton Thorne's SEC debut, okay? Hugh Freeze is at a crossroads right now, and he knows it. If you've read the comments this week, he very much sounds like a guy that is debating the two directions that he can go, right? Because he wants to run this RPO-based offense that actually has the R and actually has the P. That's the goal. If you're not doing those things, the hell are you doing running Hugh Freeze's offense? Peyton Thorne did not look like he could handle the P, and I definitely (laughs) don't think he can handle the R. Okay? So. Yeah. His his O is just get sacked or airmail air a throw. That, that's mm-hmm. right now the Auburn passing game and what it looks like. Um, obviously, he was brought in with more of a passing resume than Robbie Ashford. We've talked about a lot. The, the goal was establish that offensive DNA. Right now, they, they don't have an offensive identity. They, they just do not. The entire Auburn fan base is just dreading what Thorne will look like against the Georgia defense that has made much better Auburn quarterbacks look like Pop Warner dudes. Okay. Yep. Remember when Auburn dominated Georgia 2017? Number one Georgia that game. Yep. Jared Stidham at quarterback. Since then, here are your yearly Auburn point totals in that matchup. Seven points. That was the SEC championship that they played a few weeks later. Ten yep. points. Fourteen points. Six points. Ten points. Ten points. Basura? Yep. Yep. Not great. So yep. you might look at that and knowing that Peyton Thorne could just be a walking sack interception, strip sack fumble, and go, wait a minute, what am I missing here? Isn't Auburn the team that, as Brandon Zimmerman pointed out, has five consecutive games against Power 5 competition in which it somehow has not thrown for 100 yards? How is that possible? In this era of college football, how is that possible? Why is that spread just two touchdowns. You might be thinking that. That doesn't make any sense. Right when I saw that, my alarm bell sounded off, and I had to dig into what what is the the motivation for making that spread. Only 14 and a half, right? There, there's got to be something here that I, I, I need to think more about. And I think there is. First road start for Carson Beck. In an offense that's had some slow starts, you wonder... If he's going to be able to come out firing, 
the more you keep a team like that in the game, the louder that crowd is going to get, the tougher it's going to be. You wonder if Georgia will maybe have to grind it out in a, in a hostile atmosphere, which this team has not faced yet. You also wonder if maybe Hugh Freeze recognizes that he can't think macro with his offense in this matchup. And he finally needs to have like a more micro approach of what actually makes sense against Georgia. What makes sense against Georgia is running the football. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have said that exact sentence in the seven seasons doing the Saturday Down South podcast. What makes sense against Georgia is running the football. Those words are foreign. They, they, I feel like I'm stumbling over them, just getting them out. By the way, shout out to OG listeners who are listening to John, Chris, and myself doing this back in 2017. Yep. But here's what I mean. Georgia's only 46 in the country in yards per rush allowed. Hmm. The competition had been great, Will. They let yep. UT Martin roll into Athens and run for 4.6 yards per carry. There is a world in which Peyton Thorne starts, sucks, and after the first quarter in a 3 to nothing game, Hugh Freeze goes, Robbie, oh you, you're in. Make it happen. Don't need you to throw the football 20 times a game. Be Robbie Ashford. Be electric. You got to go off script? Go off script. That's fine. I think we get a lot of Robbie Ashford in this football game. doesn't mean that the starting job is his. It doesn't mean that a decent showing against Georgia makes Hugh Freeze decide, oh, Peyton Thorne's just going to sit on the bench. But you never know. Peyton Thorne's been benched three times in the last season and a half, whatever you want to call this. He can handle getting benched. He's had to bounce back from that before. I'm listening to Vegas on this one. I am. And that's... That's not where I expected to go when I first saw that line. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, you know what? I think this could be a 21 to 10 type game that Georgia wins, but maybe kind of struggles to distance itself from Auburn. Maybe Auburn gets out to like a seven to three lead deep into the second quarter. And we're wondering what it says about the SEC that Georgia is struggling so much against an Auburn team that looks like an absolute doormat against A&M. Like, I can see that. I don't know. Are you at like 80%, 85% with that? Okay, this one's closer to about 40 or 50, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, I, that might need, need, need to be the new format. Is you, I just give you a percentage every time. No, and that way you mix it yeah, up. just percentage yeah, at the end. Just yeah. how, how much do I agree with what you just said? Yep. Zero. You're wrong. No, just kidding. So I think that the, what I would try to avoid here, if you're Hugh Freeze, I would try to avoid the Dan Mullen. I would try to avoid what Dan Mullen did with Anthony Richardson, where he was like, fine, here, damn, start. And he started him against... Georgia and LSU, or he, or he played him a ton against LSU, but started him against Georgia. I would never want Kirby Smart in that defense to know that I'm starting Robbie Ashford. And in fact, you might even do like an opener situation with Tampa, like what they do with the Rays, where they say, okay, listen, Peyton Thorne, you got two drives. If you don't show me something, you're out of here. But yes. under, yes, but under no circumstances do I start Robbie Ashford because that Georgia defense wants to make you one-dimensional and if you are knowingly starting a quarterback that is not going to try to throw the football they're just going to send exotic blitz pressures which those three three dudes they got over there Shulman, kirby and coach boom love an exotic blitz and so if you get ashford out there in the first couple of drives he's looking lost he's taking sacks you're cooked okay but you need to at least and hopefully you can tell peyton Dorn as a competitor as a grown adult hey buddy your leash is really about to run out we're probably going to start robbie next game you have two drives, 
to not let that happen because we don't want to throw him out there against Georgia. So I think any any shot that they have here is playing on, okay, we don't know which quarterback we're going to play, neither do you. <laughs> Ooh, the classic, like, you know, coaches. But in this case, it really does matter because I really think you defend the guy. And we saw that with Anthony Richardson. You defend that type of quarterback differently. And, and I know he doesn't exactly have the arm talent of Anthony Richardson, uh, but as far as a runner, they do similar things. And so point being, I would really just make this your QB, you know, battle and say hey georgia's who we're looking at let's see which one of you plays better against georgia you're both going to see the field so that's my thing i i don't i i think that it's interesting you know when you think about a carson beck a guy who has not struggled like thorn but you know struggled more than we anticipated if auburn has that hugh freeze a little bit of oomph to him and they can get out and score on a couple of those first two positions maybe get up seven ten nothing the way that south carolina did um and start you know the special teams are a really big issue for georgia i just want to say this really quickly because we haven't even talked about them since that one game having perry sit next to me looking at georgia make like attempting a bunny cake and him going oh he effing shanked that and it just flies off to the side and i'm like how did you know that he's like saw it in his eyes that guy doesn't have <laughs> <laughs> and I was laughing so hard. So, yeah, I think that you want to push Georgia and not let them play. They play joy joyless murder ball. You got to take that option from them and not do what you did to AM because they were dead in the water that whole game against AM. I would love to know. By the way, that's a sick brag to be sitting close enough to see into the kicker's eyes before he's about to attempt a kick. Um, it was so wild. I was looking at the kicker and Perry goes, is it an effing shank? He hadn't even started the kick yet. I was like, oh, yeah, sure it is. Yep. <laughs> yep. That, that, that kick that he's talking about was very bad. Shank. You're exactly right. Yeah, this this could I, – I think this is one of those games in which you start to hear the Booberts after a mm -hmm. couple of three and outs. Thorne looks really, really overwhelmed. And Freeze is just like, well, crap, man. Like, I got to do something. I can't just tr continue to trot him out there. He's a sitting duck in this game. Yep. And even if Robbie Ashford makes you less predictable, I'd rather be less predictable and have an actual strength, which I think he would be able to give you in this football game. Besides, mm -hmm. Georgia, backup quarterbacks. Just saying. Just saying. Don't know. <laughs> Nothing great. Yeah. Nothing great. One last thing on this one. Uh, I didn't grow up with this rivalry. Like a lot of you who are probably listening to this did. I know Marler, Tony Barnhart, they've talked about it a lot. You you people who are listening to this, who have nostalgia associated with it in ways that I don't, I will not try and speak on that. I, I love that. To me, it's, it's fantastic. I couldn't believe when Marler told me for the first time, yes, this is my favorite rivalry. This game, absolutely love it. Like th this is what it's all about. Deep South Souls rivalry. Even as someone who has not consumed it to the lengths that that many who have grown up with it have, I do still think it's weird that it's in September. That doesn't feel right. I don't. I. It's the earliest this game has been played since the very first ever Auburn Georgia matchup back in 1892 when they wow. played in February. Yeah, February. I don't know. Hold on. How that worked. <laughs> Would love to see the game film. Would love to see it. I. Psh, Piedmont Park, man. People swear by it. it Piedmont. Uh, that's fire. I love that fact. Yeah. 1892, we were in between Grover Cleveland administrations. That was a, a Benjamin Harrison uh, four-year run that we had there mm. for those curious at home. Nobody cared about that. All right. Game that a lot of people care about, I'm sure. National audience, number 23, Mizzou, 13 and a half point favorite against Vandy. The over-under, 101 Cody Schrader rushing yards. That's what the Mizzou tailback's averaging this year. Pretty good. That is your leading rusher in the SEC, Cody Schrader. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Want to impress your friends? Drop that little nugget on him. Cody Schrader and Woody Marks are leading the SEC in rushing after four weeks. As we all predicted, Connor. 
Obviously. Who who didn't say that? And by the way, who also didn't have Brady Cook being the last SEC starting quarterback to throw an interception? He's hasn't thrown one yet. Hasn't thrown one. Mm-hmm. Ever since he got booed, that Kansas State introduction that Drink kind of went off about, um, guy's been great. I, maybe, I don't know. Mizzou fans boo him every time. Boom. Yeah. Like, if this is the quarterback that you're going to get and that's all it took, light that fire every single time. Drink's going to hate it, but I, I don't know. Like, it kind of just says to a message, hey, the, we're, we're just a place that gives tough love. Philly, mm-hmm. Columbia, Como, <laughs> wait. Hey, tough love. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Brady Cook helps that he's been throwing passes to Luther Burden, who just looks freaking unguardable at this point. Like, he has been incredible. That move to the slot, matchup nightmare. There is nobody on that Vandy roster who can cover him. There just isn't. But what I think is probably not getting talked about enough is the discrepancy between what fans and people who watch Mizzou think about their offensive line versus their PFF grades. Nobody cares hmm. about that. This is a, this is we're, we're getting deep into the weeds with this one. Um, but we're still trying to find the SEC's only good offensive line. Is this, it is it worse than they think. Mizzou fans don't think their offensive line is good. They don't. Oh, I, they no. So they sneaky don't. good offensive line. I, I don't know that it means it's sneaky good. I think it just means the PFF grades are really good. Like, so yeah, think about this. But everybody's so bad that being mid is like top and Alabama can't block anybody right now. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Mizzou fans just need to watch other SEC offensive lines and they'll be like, hey, yeah, you know what? Watch, watch the Vandy offensive line this weekend. Um, that, that might cure all this, but think about this. They have the two highest graded tackles in the SEC. Um, all bang the drum team member, Javon Foster, highest graded tackle in America, according to PFF, also has the number three and number 10 guards in the SEC and the highest graded center in FBS. Yeah, hmm. that's that's by the PFF metrics. This is a good offensive line by people who have eyeballs. They say, I, I think I think they got some issues. I think they might struggle a little bit. Uh, but anyway, nobody's really going to care about that. I think Mizzou but with the biggest touchdowns. win, too, because I think we pretty much agreed. Well, I mean, maybe Bama being Ole Miss, but in terms of like what it says about your program, them being uh, Kansas State is a real good team. They won the Big 12 last year, so it's not like they're playing cupcakes and pushing them around. Non-conference win. Biggest non-conference win. I think yeah, I, okay, I would, easy, I would fair. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tougher when you get into SEC play and you kind of look at you look at some of those matchups, because I, I agree. I think Bama beating Ole Miss is, is still a little bit more impressive with how good Ole Miss looks. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's something to be said for it. The improvement has been there so far. If they win this game, if Mizzou pulls off a, a victory against Vandy as a two-touchdown favorite, it would be the program's first win as an AP-ranked foe against Power 5 competition since 2014. I was about to say the Obama administration, probably Gary Pinkle or early Barry Odom. No, that's that's Gary Pinkle. That We're, we're right in the heart of it. <laughs> Pinkle was through 2015, right? Through, through uh. 2015, yeah. So, mm-hmm. um yeah, big one on the line for Mizzou. Five and zero, five and zero is nothing to scoff at. Okay, yep. if you can get to five and zero, you beat a couple of Power Five teams, you should be feeling pretty good about yourself. Are you at like thirty five percent in agreement, or are we at like ninety five? I think this is like sixty. Okay, so what I would say is it would be the most Mizzou thing ever to just come out and flatten this one. Yep. It would be the most Mizzou thing, and they, in fact, they did that in this very game last year, didn't they, Connor? Uh, is this one? This is in Nashville. They they won this. They they won this game though. They won this game. They, they didn't they lose. They won this it. Game. They they didn't lose it. They it was, it had some tough moments in this one. Um, yeah, this this game is in Nashville. Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. So yeah, I, I feel like, you know, as we've talked about, Vandy has the ability, now they haven't exactly shown it this year, but they have the ability to come out and, and like shock some people. I don't think Mizzou will win this game or will lose this game necessarily, but I do think maybe we see a couple of things from Vandy, maybe Mizzou. I mean, we've just talked about it's their first ranked win as a ranked team since I mean, dang near a decade ago. So I think that this could be the game where they come out really rusty and Vandy, who has had an extra game to prepare, uh, maybe makes this one a little bit tough. But yeah, I think Mizzou probably pulls this one out in the end. Yeah, what want to be clear. First win as a ranked team against Power 5 competition since oh, 2014. Wow. That's yeah. what's on the line. So they haven't gotten there yet. They have. They, they need to win this game in order to clinch that. Like beating Memphis technically doesn't count in that in that stat. But yeah, yeah. Um, pretty crazy to think about and they have laid some eggs in those spots um okay probably the game of the, yeah game of the week i'm gonna call it game of the week in the sec a game mm-hmm. that i've been excited about uh ever since the preseason when i predicted old miss to beat lsu number 13 lsu two and a half point favorite on the road against number 20 old miss the over under 234 combined receiving yards for malik neighbors and brian thomas Whew. that's what they're averaging so far will mm-hmm it's. I, I was actually amazed that it's not number one in the country. The Washington duo. They oh actually yeah, have, those guys are nasty yeah, too. Throw the ball a little bit more, but still, that duo has been incredibly good. Um, outside of probably the one play a piece that they had in that Florida State game, because it was the the border. I think it was the. I guess you would call it a drop. I, I wasn't sure if that ball was tipped on the sideline with Brian Thomas, and then when Malik Davis fell down and that that mm-hmm. that pick to start the fourth quarter. Like outside of that. LSU fans, this, this is what you hoped and dreamed it would be. This is yep. it right now. Like, I love the usage of these guys. You think, okay, Brian Thomas, big physical receiver. He makes all these plays on the outside, right? Like, that guy's actually averaging 7.3 slot snaps per game. And mm-hmm. Malik Neighbors, one of the reasons I love watching this guy is because you never know where he's going to be. 20.5 slot snaps per game. Mike Denbrock's done a really nice job of kind of mixing things up. And once you once you might feel like you have things figured out, you actually don't. And it's significant because they're really tough to shadow with what teams typically like to do with their corners. And it gives them mm-hmm. a lot of opportunities to be able to see those mismatches. Jaden Daniels can look at the line of scrimmage and be like, I, I know I'm about to get Malik Neighbors on a linebacker or something like that. I'm going to take advantage yep. of that every single time. And with the pre-snap window dressing that they do, Obviously, it's given him a lot of those opportunities. Jaden's been very, very locked in. Um, even if Ole Miss wanted to have like DeAndre Prince, who's been really good so far this year, even if they wanted to have him shadow neighbors, there's still probably a really good chance that he's going to get opportunities in one-on-one coverage or you're leaving Brian Thomas on a number two corner. And so far, like I'll take those chances every single time. Give me Brian Thomas. He's going to win that battle. Ole Miss mm-hmm. has not allowed anyone to hit 100 receiving yards in a game yet. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Then you look at the receivers that they face, and you're like, oh, is Jermaine Burton the best receiver that they face so far? Uh, By the way, shout out to all the media members who insisted on putting Jermaine Burton as an all-SEC guy in the preseason. He currently has eight catches and ranks outside the top 20 in the SEC in receiving. Hate to say we told Listen, you so. You just got to trust so. that Bama passing offense no matter what sometimes, man. When a guy can't get open with Bryce Young... Of course, he's going to do better with Jalen Milrow. Obviously. Just never understand that. Like, why people continue to overrate that guy. Um, yeah. I'm going to give Jackson Dart the benefit of the doubt for one thing, but not for another. Okay. He, he gets the benefit of the doubt for having just a revolving door at the pass catcher position so far. 
multiple outlets reported that his former USC teammate, Michael Trigg, who followed him over to Ole Miss, he was the hero of that Tulane game. He is no longer with the team. Looks like he's taking advantage of the four the four game redshirt rule. Mm-hmm. Um, Caden Prescorn, who came over from from Memphis, he finally played in his first game against Bama. He's now going to be in a more prominent role. He's going to be playing a lot of snaps for them. Trey Harris got off to that unbelievable start, sets the Ole Miss record for receiving touchdowns in a game in his debut after coming over from Louisiana Tech. Hasn't played since the, well, the first quarter of that Tulane game. Um, and mm-hmm. still knows Zakari Franklin after he was probably one of the top gets out of the transfer portal. And you're looking at this going, man, like we've had a lot of different moving pieces. So D- Dayton Wade, Jordan Watkins, those guys have been really good so far. But at the same time, I do give Jackson Dart a little bit of a pass for all of those different moving pieces that he's had to deal with. I also went back, looked at Jackson Dart's numbers against FBS teams with a winning record. That's, mm. by the way, that's not at the time of the game. That's basically teams who turn out to be decent. That that's yeah. That's what I think is more interesting than whether or not you know, like random Georgia Tech is one and zero at the time of a matchup. Like I don't care about that. That doesn't matter to me. Yeah, that's smart. I, I think way more people should do that because a lot of these like wins that they'll throw up on the end of the screen. It's like, dude, that team finished five and seven. It's like Miami yeah. beating A and M last year. If they, you know, what I'm saying like, okay, congrats. Like you know, we beat a top fifteen team. Did you though? Did you? Yeah. No. No. Um. And by the way, A and M. Now that I'm thinking about that, wasn't a top fifteen team. Well, Miami was at the time. A and M wasn't a top fifteen because they had already lost to App State. But whatever. Um, yeah. So this year, if you're just looking at FBS teams with a winning record, that Ole Miss's face, that's Tulane, that's Bama. 133 quarterback rating, slight bump from his 126 mark last year in those games. Two to two TD to T ratio, 1.8 yards per carry, and he had the one score with his legs. And I praise his Tulane performance. I thought he was good, but that still just is in the back of my mind with him. I just, you're like, dude, you can't run through Dallas Turner. You, you just can't. Like these guys are bigger and stronger and, and faster than you. Like that's just not how you need to operate. They're going to take you down. You're not going to run through them. Old yeah. Miss fans, if your boy comes out with a dud in this one, you're going to look back on this right now and you're going to say, Connor might've been right about that. There, there might be something to that. There's a reason why we weren't willing to say this guy's going to be year two Matt Corral in the system. I, mm-hmm. I just... But I have I have some Ole Miss optimism, and here's why. And you're going to push back. We're going to be at like 7% agreement okay. on this one. I think we will be. LSU has struggled against quarterbacks who can shift the pocket and buy time. 100%. That, that's okay. 100%. We're good. We're good. Jackson Dart, we know. He can do that. LSU's run defense, number 98 in FBS with 4.4 yards per run allowed. Here's the more interesting number as it relates to this game and why I think it's very, very important on both sides of the ball. LSU is dead last among power five teams with 5.7 yards per rush allowed in the first half. Okay. Mm -hmm. So teams are pretty much saying, yeah, your defensive line, we think we can go at them. I think Quinchon Judkins, who has been dealing with a rib injury, maybe a sophomore slump, maybe he's pressing a little bit, maybe the offensive lines regress. Maybe it's just a mix of all those things, whatever it is. I think he just needs to see that one hole open up and he's a different guy. I, I, I mm-hmm. just have this feeling that he can be that guy. Or maybe not so much a different guy, but just the one that torched the SEC a year ago and was really, really good, probably with the exception of the second half of this football game. I think he gets going. I think Lane really makes it a point to emphasize that. He takes the ball out of Jackson Dart's hands. 
I took a lot of heat in the preseason for picking Ole Miss to hand LSU its second loss in September. And while there are a lot of elements on paper that make me think Lane will once again turtle against quality competition, I came back to this. I think through four games, these teams are really similar to what I thought they would be in the preseason. Really similar. Like, I didn't think Judkins was going to struggle this much, but I did think that there could be a sophomore slump. He could have a little bit of tough sledding in the early part of the season. Whatever. I did express my concerns about Jackson Dart against quality competition. But while I think LSU is the better team, and I would take LSU to win a game at a neutral site or win a game in Death Valley, I think in Oxford, I think Ole Miss gets up for this one. I do. Mm -hmm. I think Ole Miss wins the Ed Odron Bowl. I think Lane earns his first signature victory to date. It's like a 34 to 31 type game, which that would actually mean the under would hit because I think the over under on this one is 64 or is 67 and a half. It's really, really high. This should be a fun, fun game. And I'm prepared for whatever reason. I have just set myself up to say once again, Lane can't beat quality competition. I just ignored everything I said last week. That's what I did. Yeah. Um, no, and I, I think that I'll give you 60% of this one. Oh! I, 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 I think that you're giving very fair criticisms of LSU and Ole Miss from what they've shown so far. I, the only thing I would push back on, I think LSU's D-line has been awesome. I think their linebackers have been a very big problem. Um, Smith's going to be playing in this one. We still don't know about that. He was out with hip <laughs> flexor last week, too. You worry about that? I just, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because it's like the classic, like, we have these linebackers, but they're good, right? No. And it's like, yeah, like you have possibly the best linebacker. I mean, as a pass rusher in the country in Harold Perkins. You have Weeks, the freshman, who's been awesome. You have Spates, who's like this you know, former all-Pac-12 guy who was the leader at Oregon State. And you just put them all out there, and they're just bad. And then uh, Sam, Andre Sam, is a dude who has made so many good plays, and yet he has just as many lowlights where you're like, can you, do you just not know how to tackle when you need to tackle? Like, if there's another guy holding the, the, the ball carrier up and you just knock the mess out of him and you strip the ball, you do all this stuff, you start celebrating, it's awesome. But if it's like a screen pass or it's something off to the side, you got to wrap a guy up, you can't do it. What's up? How much, how much as an LSU fan do you miss BJ Ojolari? Oh, man. I mean, there's so many guys that if I had like a like a celebrity shot, I would grab so many guys from either. Honestly, last year's team, because even the linebacker leadership, I feel like was even a little bit better. Yeah, I, I've, I've been wondering about that with this team, like a guy who he knows what he's going to be doing in a given week. We've talked about that with Perkins. Mm -hmm. And while the, the pass rushing snaps have gone up, um, it, it's still like 16, 17 a game. That's what it's been the last two weeks, I think, uh, when I checked the PFF numbers on that. But just a guy who, you know. Every single time you're going to have to deal with, and there's a good chance that he is going to be disruptive in those spots. Like, I don't know that LSU has that guy yet. I, we haven't said Mason Smith's name as much as I thought we would in the mm -hmm. first part of his uh, in the first part of his return back to the lineup. Uh, so maybe you know we knew it was going to be maybe a little bit of a slow start, but I I just think they they lack that that glue in that defense, and it's why sometimes I think they can come apart in the in the the wrong situation for them. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I'm sorry, I, I now you've keep me in on that. I always say that. I, I agree with you. The thing that's super interesting about this game for me as well is we don't even really know <laughs> what either rushing attack is gonna look like. Cause on one side we have Judkins, who was this awesome guy last year that if you had last year's Judkins, I would easily pick Ole Miss for this one. Yep. Um, because those linebackers being as scrambled as they are, you know, to your point about Ojalari, you could get all the pass rush in the world that you want, but if the linebackers don't know what they're doing, it's just gonna be a little bloop or one linebacker misses assignment on a blitz and suddenly now you have 
a 1v1 where you could just put a guy in the dirt as a good running back like Judkins. Um, but on the other side, I, I really think that Logan Diggs coming on is going to be massive for LSU. And I Agreed. was supposed to get this stat. That's why I was distracted saying um, 100%, but I just forgot. Uh, the vast majority of the games that, that Jaden Daniels has played for LSU, he has been the leading rusher. Um, and already through the season, with missing the first game, Diggs has outrushed him on the season. Um, so I think that's something that Jaden has never had at LSU, a guy that he can hand the ball off to and just take a breather. Uh, I think that that was a lot of what happened with Jaden Daniels at the end of last year. And we saw it. We talked about this all the time with KJ, where you just take a certain amount of hits, you get a certain amount of carries, and you're just kind of like, like you can't quickly you know, make these reads and stuff in the way that they could. So I think that's going to be massive uh, for them against an Ole Miss, you know, both lines have not been awesome. So I say that to say this. I think this is going to be a super high-scoring game. I do not trust LSU's DBs as far as I can throw them. I think that their linebackers against this Jackson Dart, like RPO read option thing is going to be uh, tough. But I look at what happened in last year's game where Ole Miss had no reason to lose that game. And I know it was at Tiger Stadium, but this is a Tiger Stadium that just gotten run through by Tennessee. Um, that something happened in that game where Brian Kelly just looked – Lane Kiffin in the eye, it was just like, you're not built for this, buddy. In the same way that, that we saw Saban do last week. And going into that game, the stats made even less sense because LSU was at that point in the season the worst team and Ole Miss was a better team. Um, and I know home and road matters in the SEC, but it's not like we're going to Brian Denny. You know, it's not like we're going to Sanford. I think that Ole Miss is a fine college environment. But in the back of their heads, this has been a rivalry that LSU – when they've needed a game has been able to get it. So yeah, I, I think that Diggs is going to be a big difference maker. And to your point, I don't know if there's a DB tandem in America that can stop these two receivers playing the way that they are. And one final thing, and I think that you hit on this so perfectly as an LSU fan, I've been trying to rank these two receivers historically, and, you know, going all the way back to like Michael Clayton and those boys and like the, the receivers we've watched. And that right there is exactly the difference between these guys and the other guys. It was when we had Odell and Jarvis, they were running two routes out of the eye and they were like slant routes. And it was like the oh, easiest thing in the world to cover. And now it has me thinking, I wish that we had Mike Dinbrock as old as he is level of innovation under less miles. Because you're right. Every play, it's like Jaden looks up, looks for both of them, goes, who's about to cook? Oh, you. Boom. Oh, you're on a linebacker. You're in the slot. Okay, boom. You. Every single time. And so it is almost a one-read offense because one of those guys is winning their matchup every time. And they can if, – if you're forced to cover them for seven seconds – because Jaden has extended a play. Oh man, good, yeah. good luck. For, forget about it. Like th that's that's such a difficult matchup for a defense to handle. And I'm not going to fault teams that that struggle to contain that, especially now that Jaden is looking like a guy who is recognizing the importance of that in the offense. And I'm I'm glad you brought up the the halftime point in this game because it's so easy to forget that Ole Miss was winning at halftime in Death Valley badly. Like They're felt hopeless. They're like up three at half. Ole Miss was undefeated. Almost was number seven right. in the country last year, but it was still wait and see mode because obviously the competition wasn't very good in the first part of the season. LSU was the two loss team. Yep. LSU outscored them 28 to nothing in the second half of that game. Lane to that point in his career at Ole Miss was 20 and 0 with a halftime lead. What makes you that confident? that he is going to be able to keep the foot on the gas in this one. That's, that's what I've struggled with. I'll, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll be honest. Like that there, there is obviously very much a path for an LSU victory. And I'm not saying like Ole Miss is going to win this convincingly, but is now maybe the right time to catch LSU is now maybe the time in which LSU is feeling like, all right, we're out of the woods, got over that tough start. And they come into this one, not disciplined on defense and in a tough road atmosphere, 
an atmosphere that let's be honest, like I'm not here to, to rank every sec road atmosphere. You hit on this before is not going to be listed in the top three. I think it's, mm-hmm. that, that's fair to say, but that hasn't always been the biggest thing with LSU. That hasn't always been, Oh my God. Like they, they, they go in front of a hundred thousand people and that's when they crap the bed. I think they've had more moments of lapses in this one. And I don't think it's a game in which we look back and say, Oh, the LSU offense let him down. I love the stat about Diggs. I think he's third in the SEC in rushing right now, which yep. for a guy that's missed a game, um, that's really, really impressive. But I still believe that Ole Miss is going to find just enough against this LSU defense. And the takeaway will be, man, this LSU defense, it let him down. It let him down. And what could have been a group that we thought had a lot of potential to maybe make a run for the playoff could be all but out of it by the time the month of September is over, but we're you know, okay. So we're not in total. We're, we're at like 20% agreement. I think on this game. Yes. And I'll say this too, you know, this is almost the earliest I've ever seen two sec teams with legitimate hopes at contending because like, I mean, I know Adam Spencer picked um, almost to win the West and all we knew about the West is it was pretty wide open. They could, if they go and two, I mean, they're done. Like they're not winning the West. If they lose to LSU and Alabama, there's no shot. I mean, they'll just never make those games up. Yeah, you're, so you're I done. do think this is, the, yeah, this is a, this is for sure a prove it game against Lane. The problem is that game already happened. <laughs> it was last week. He's already lost that game. And in fact, losing that or winning that game and losing this game, you're fine. You, if you've already beaten Alabama, you could probably get it all together and hope LSU pukes on their shoes, which Brian Kelly is known to do. Um, but at the end of the day, we got you know two games here. And funny enough, Tennessee is almost there because they play South Carolina. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But if you lose to South Carolina with the way that they've been playing and you already have a loss to Florida and you got Kentucky right there undefeated playing Florida this weekend. So I think we have like two coaches that are kind of like these offensive guys that have their backs against the wall. It's going to be interesting to see how they respond. And like I said, this is really a feel pick because last week I tried to go with the stats for Ole Miss and say that they were a better team than Alabama. None of that mattered. So I'm going to do the inverse this time and pick LSU because the st- <laughs> logically, yeah, Ole Miss should win, but who cares? I think there are a lot of stats in favor of LSU. I don't I don't think that's 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 totally crazy. I, I think last week the, the stats 100% favored Ole Miss in that game. That yep. 100%. And that's why I was willing to be like, you know what? I don't care. I'm throwing those out. Those mean absolutely nothing. I'm glad you listened to those for the last 10 minutes. I'm going to go with what I can't picture happening on Monday. And I, for whatever You're reason, right. I it worked out that one time. That's about it. But I'm glad that we're split on this game. That makes me feel a little bit better about it. South Carolina, number one. Number 21, not number one, number 21, Tennessee. Tennessee's a 12 and a half point favorite for this game. Speaking of great receivers, the over-under that I have, 139 Xavier Leggett receiving yards. Mm. That's what that's what our guy is averaging this year. They call him XL. He has been extra large for that group. He leads the nation in receiving, Will. He, <laughs> he leads the whole freaking country. What? Yep. What? If you had told me like, yeah, Xavier Leggett's going to be the number two target on this team. I'd be like, I don't know. We sure? We sure about that? That, that was just for the number two target on his own team. He's got more yep. receiving yards through four games than he had in his previous four seasons at South Carolina. That is insane. He has been incredible. I think Spencer Rattler has been really, really good. We got into You and I got into a little bit of a back and forth because my guy Brad Crawford, he went on five bomb and he talked about Rattler being QB1 in the SEC so far. And you brought up a tweet showing Rattler's average depth of target ranks 121st in FBS. Mm-hmm. I don't think Rattler is QB1 in the SEC. I'd probably give that to Jaden right now. But here's where I'll push back on that. Okay. 
I think if the season ended today, I would, yes, I think Rattler would earn one of those two all SEC quarterback spots. We dogged Spencer Rattler in the past because he wasn't good enough in the intermediate, in the intermediate passing game. And he just wanted to make these cool off platform throws with bad mm-hmm. mechanics whenever he was chased out of the pocket, right? Like that's just what he did. So now with a bad offensive line, he has cleaned up those mechanics, which is painfully obvious. Watch Spencer Rattler play football this year compared to years past. I promise you, you'll see the difference. He's playing even better than he did during that seven-game stretch to end the 2020 season at Oklahoma. And the numbers bear it out. I have a column on Saturday Down South that's running Thursday morning, like digging into all of that. You can look at the side-by-side, and it's, to me, especially with the surroundings of what they are at South Carolina, like, you just think about it. It's totally different than what he had at Oklahoma. He's doing that with the worst running game in Power 5. His top receiver coming into the season, a guy that we thought, preseason All-SEC guy, Juice Wells, he's played 60 snaps this season. And his OC, Dow Loggins, is a guy who is calling college plays for the first time. Like, Rattler has been the common denominator of all these things. That seven-game stretch is partially last year with freaking Marcus Satterfield as his offensive coordinator. Didn't know how to get Jaheim Bell the football besides handing it off to him. Like, couldn't had Leggett uh, just sitting there on a bench like, oh, we should do something with this guy. I'll get to that next week. <laughs> I think Leggett's gotten better as a player. And if you saw, I think he had the, the highest top-end speed. I can't remember who had the stats, so I, I apologize. I saw this on Twitter. But it was the highest top-end speed of any football player, college or NFL this year. Dude's running faster on that play, on that touchdown, than freaking Tyreek Hill. Okay, Jeez. That's, I mean, dude can absolutely jet. And I think he's gotten better – Doing offseason workouts with Debo Samuel. Uh, I think he's he's done some things to kind of help his game, and we're seeing that improvement pl- pay off for him. But I, I just think that Rattler, like if you've watched him play and you're you're thinking to yourself, well, let me just default to average depth of target. To me, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that takes the full context into what he's being asked to do within that offense. And yes, while he's not necessarily out here slinging it the same way Michael Penix is, definitely not doing that. Very different offenses. I do think we need to take those other things into context as it relates to his performance. Fair enough. Fair. Oh yeah. Uh, I agree with you 80%. And here's why I was defending him not being the number one quarterback in the sec. I think that again has so clearly been Jaden Daniels. Yeah. He struggled in the second half against FSU, but I just, and not that I'm being a homer, but it's that name has changed every single week. And at some point it's like the, it's like the comparisons of these great teams. Like, you know, 07 Patriots, like 2019, it's like, is this team the new this? And it's like, yep. no, because you would have been comparing them to the last this. Uh, and so that's that's where I'm going with that. But I think he's second. And I think, honestly, at this point, I, I think he's pretty well secured himself that, uh, even though, you know, he's had some losses. But to your point, it's like he's surrounded by spies. And, like, that's one of – as a Drew Brees fan, I know exactly what that looks like. Yeah, you do. And, uh, yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, look, let's – Bears and Saints fans have not seen a lot of like helping our quarterbacks go on. And so point being like, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And I think you're right. We talked about this last year, but it's almost like Spencer Rattler was so high on this mountain. And he thought he was better than everyone. He thought he was just Mahomes 2.0 without doing hard work. And then he came to South Carolina and he had like the exact opposite experience. He didn't have all this buy-in. He didn't have all these weapons around him or honestly like a program like Oklahoma that has, you know, that level of like support. And like, I love like South Carolina and what they've done, but we talked about it. Like their best quarterback ever is maybe Steven Garcia. You know Connor what I'm Shaw. saying? So, Shaw. Yeah. I, I, um, yeah. I think Shaw would be the, the consensus answer among South Carolina fans. 
Yeah. Um, one of those two guys that we both saw play, you know what I'm saying? So just historically, it's not a place like Oklahoma that's had all these Heisman winners and stuff like that. And so point being like, he's had to learn, uh, I guess, humbleness or humility, but that sounds like it's connotated differently. But anyway, yeah, I, I'm a hundred percent with you. I think he's figured out the things that he needs to, uh, learn as far as when you see him do the off platform stuff now, it's for a purpose. And that's yeah. when, you know, in that Georgia game, he made a lot of hay there when he realized, okay, I know what it looks like when I got to get out of the pocket. I'm going to do that right now, hit this guy in stride. And he's comfortable out of the pocket because he almost built that first. And so now when he's in the pocket, it's like, yeah, your line could be collapsing all this. So I, with him, you almost have to do the, if you put him on a different team, how would he be? And I think pretty clearly, you know, with, with like the st- like if he was on Alabama, brother, <laughs> watch out. In a heartbeat, how many teams right now would take Spencer Rattler over their current option? I mean, oh yeah, there are a lot of people who who will disagree with that because they just don't like Spencer Rattler as a person. They they keep going back to the Netflix stuff. They're like, oh, he's this, which he's is this, fair. This. Which like, I, I don't know. But he's a different guy now. People can learn. People can change, and that's what the Spencer Rattler story is at this point. If I compare who I was at seventeen to who I was at twenty two, I'd be like, all right, what this is this is night and day, night and yep. day. And we were just regular dudes who thought we were like that. That's the best part. This yeah. is a guy who Netflix approached him for a documentary as a logo. Like, I get it, dude. Yeah. Um, and by the way, if he was that guy at South Carolina, you would know by now. You yep. would know. I'll just, I'll just say that. Um, having said all that, having given Rattler his praise, if Tim Banks does not play drop eight coverage against this South Carolina offense, he should just turn in his headset. Just hmm. turn in your headset because – that's probably the issue that is facing South Carolina moving forward, despite the fact that they've looked really good in the passing game uh, when Spencer Rattler has had times and even when he hasn't had time. You can probably get home with three against the South Carolina offensive line. Tennessee, I think, is capable of doing that with what they have at the pass rusher spots. That's been a strength of this team. You can, with drop eight coverage, defend against the deep ball, which is – Still a, a weapon for South Carolina. Legat's still very, very capable of doing that, even though obviously the average depth of target is, is pretty limited. You could say, hey, you want to beat us, South Carolina? Run the football. We don't think you can. Yeah, I like what we saw from Mario Anderson. That was good. Uh, Mario Anderson, I don't know that he's making you pay big time. Okay, I just don't know that he's that guy. I think Tennessee makes that adjustment. And you, if you watch what they did last year where they're playing all that man coverage and it just didn't work out, Juice Wells was unguardable in that game. Obviously, they don't have Juice Wells, but you have to change your approach. You can't think that that same approach is going to work against Spencer Rattler. I don't care that you're playing in a different venue. It is. It needs to be an adjustment on the Tennessee side of the ball defensively. I don't think South Carolina gets off the field defensively not enough to be able to win this game. And by the way, that's a Tennessee offense that has lacked explosive plays in the passing game, but it's still been the SEC's best rushing attack by a mile. If you look at those numbers, I debated, I really did debate sticking with my preseason pick and having South Carolina pull off another double digit upset. They've done that four times in the Shane Beamer era, including obviously this game last year, but based on the struggles that I've seen so far from South Carolina in the trenches, I don't think Spencer Rattler can quite do enough to win this game. And so I also think Tennessee has been a a lot better up front than I forecasted in the preseason. I'll admit taking an L on that one. I think they, they, they rely on that defense to win this game. They lead the sec in yards per play allowed, which is a really, really good sign moving forward for a group that needed to be more consistent. I will take Tennessee to win, but I'm going to take South Carolina to cover 28, 21. Uh, since he also leading the SEC in sacks, believe it or not. Yeah, I, uh, I'm 
kind of changing course on this one. As I, I, I owe you an apology, Tennessee defense. I was not familiar with your game. I watched you against Graham Mertz, and you look terrible. So just I assume first, just in the first half, though. Like if you actually look at the second half of what Tennessee was was doing, I think that was more about penalties than yeah than, than the defense getting gashed left and right. Like they they had a couple they had, they had a few bad moments early, but like who who in college football hasn't had a bad half? This, this year i mean think about that <laughs> brother i my team has <laughs> let me let me ask you this though sell me on south carolina's pass coverage before i totally abandoned ship i mean are they a mess back there like what, what have you seen so far not not great not great <laughs> they've been so loaded at corner the last few years and i think we forget how much they've had to replace and they're relying on some younger guys there i love even worry he's on the all being the drum team that's not his strength yet at this stage of his career. He's better coming downhill, lining up in the box, kind of being a little bit of an everyman for you. That's not necessarily what he does best. Will Rogers went off against this group. A Mississippi State offense that had no identity whatsoever went into williams Bryce and said, we're just going to keep throwing the football. We don't care. We don't think you have the guys yeah. to stop it. And they were right. They were 100% right to adjust that approach which was a total 180 from what we've seen so far from Kevin Barbe. So I can't give you any sort of confidence that South Carolina's secondary is going to be able to shut down Tennessee. I, I want so badly to pick this upset because this is such a, a Beamer upset right here. I mean, if you talk about, yeah, they're a team that's better at nothing. Um, but the, I mean, QB play probably, which how far can that take you? We've, we're seeing. But uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, this being the game that was just such a beatdown completely unexpectedly last year. There's just enough weird little things where I'm like, ah, I think Tennessee might be able to actually handle this one. And I, I'm with you as far as like, I think Tennessee wins, but does it cover? Because I do think they struggle in this one. But South Carolina is just the more and more I look, the more flawed of a team they are and it's it sucks because yeah it's like we're now like again with Spencer Rattler used to be oh you're like the driver in this super fast car and we replace you with Caleb Williams to get better now it's like you're the car brother everyone yeah. else is on your back like luggage going to grandma's house you're taking us as far as you can get so I, I feel for the guy and I think they have one of these upsets in them but it just feels like they got to prove everything at once against a team like Tennessee who Probably like they're anti Georgia in that Georgia will struggle out of the game and get better. Tennessee will score on you twice and then stop scoring. And for a team like South Carolina, that might not be good. I think they have one of those upsets in them. I don't know that they have with this team and how it has looked so far with the weaknesses that they have. I don't know that it happens on the road. That's that's, that's I think a good the, point. The bigger issue. If this game were at Williams Bryce, I think we'd be having a different conversation. But yeah, I'd say we're yep. in like what, seventy five percent agreement on this one? Yep. Yep. All right, Alabama, number 12, Alabama, still outside the top 10. 14 and a half point favorite at Mississippi State. The over-under I have. Oh, boy, I've brought up this stat a lot this offseason, so apologies if you've heard me say this before, but the over-under I have is 0.5 Mississippi State passing touchdowns. Hmm. We got to bring it up again. Mississippi State's last passing touchdown against Alabama. Teams who play every single year. It came from Dak Prescott in 2014. Yeah. 480 minutes and 15 seconds of football between these two teams since that happened. 180 minutes of football with the master of the air raid offense. The guy mm -hmm. who's like, yeah, I'm going to throw it 50 times a game. I don't care. Still, no passing touchdowns. Speaking of Mike Leach, he referenced very, very candidly every single time this game would roll around on the schedule the fear that Mississippi State would play with against Alabama. Zach Arnett kind of brushed that off. What else are you supposed to say in that spot? Kind of get it. 
it's kind of hard to argue with. It, it really is. That might upset some Mississippi State fans. Are we wrong? 15 consecutive wins. Mississippi State has been held to 10 points or less. And get this, Will. 13 of those 15 matchups can't score more than 10 points. That is yep. insane to think about with what offense has done. With the great offensive minds that they have had. A Dan Mullen. A Joe Moorhead. Conversation ends right there. No, I'm kidding. Um, also insane to think about. We talked about this the other day. How much Mississippi State has struggled against Power 5 passing attacks. The most disrespectful thing was seeing Jaden Delora and that Arizona passing offense that threw three interceptions on their first three drives say, you know what? We think we can still beat you with a pass. They were right. 332 passing yards allowed per game against Power 5 competition. 9.6 yards per attempt in those instances they have allowed. That is worst among teams who have played three games against Power 5 competition. Bad. Real bad. Basura, many would say. Mm -hmm. First road star for Jalen Milrow. But God, this is a juicy matchup for him. It really is. Yep. Mississippi State has had those three matchups against Power 5 teams. Each game, it has allowed a receiver to rack up 160 receiving yards. That's a lot. That's a dude going off. That's what that is. Yep. Bama does not have a guy who has hit 100 receiving yards in a game this year. Yikes. If you had told Bama fans in August, hey, through four games, get this, Jermaine Burton, Ja'Cory Brooks, Malik Benson, those guys are going to have a combined 12 catches for 226 yards. Bama fans would have either punched you in the face or projectile vomited. Yep. At this point, Bama will take anyone stepping up and looking the part for, even if it's just one game, even if it's just one game, what's the knock on Jalen Milrow? It's that he locks in on a target. He's going to have that one guy. You could probably get away with that a little bit against Mississippi State. You yep. probably can. It's possible that the three-three-five, which we are still respecters of, despite the rough start to the year for Mississippi State, it's yep. possible that it confuses Jalen Milrow. He throws a bad pick, maybe two bad picks, I don't know but that he can still have himself a really big day stretching the field. Yep. If I'm picking a guy to go off, it's probably Isaiah Bond. Just knowing how much Mississippi State has kind of struggled to defend those interchangeable receivers. Talked about it with Leggett, talked about it with neighbors. Kind of line that guy up all over the place. Just give him a bunch of different looks and see if you can get, get somebody loose. He would probably be the best guy that fits that bill. I think he gets loose a couple times. I think the Bama defense does its part, even without Deontay Lawson, which they dealt with that loss for the majority of that Ole Miss game as well and still looks really good on the defensive side. I'm going to go 24-7 to Bama. Where are you at? Let me let me guess what what, what percentage. No, you're, you're going to be more. You're going to be higher. 78% you're at. Yes, that is actually right on the money. Um, How about it? Yeah. That's that's perfect. I was I was going between seventy five and eighty. Yeah, I think that you know this is going to be a big day for the people with the Taekwondo geese and their Twitter avies. Uh, they're going to say, "Ah, we told you we're back." Da da da. da because again, Mississippi State has lost with all. We've talked about the different offensive styles that Mississippi State has had. You know, not work. Pa not work. Pa yeah, all of them have been equally busted against Alabama, and this is the worst one 
probably by far uh, that we've seen in a while. I mean, since like the three two days of, of Ole Miss of Mississippi State. I mean, so point being, yeah, I, I think that this is just a juicy matchup. I think you hit that one on the head. I mean, these guys couldn't stop a nosebleed. There have been so many disrespectful things that have happened against the defensive side of the ball that, yeah, I think this is a perfect game for Jalen Milrow because like you said, he could have two bad picks and it wouldn't matter just because if you test these DBs enough, it's going to work. And so if you take 10 deep shots and two of them are picked off and six of them are completions, you're up 20 points. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. I, and, and on the other side, I think that, you know, we could talk about how uh, that was a little bit of Ole Miss turtling in that moment or that the Bama defense played well. It doesn't really matter because they're going to play even better against Mississippi State because at least with Ole Miss, you have Lane Kiffin. You have, uh, you know, incumbent, and as, as tough as it is, I mean, Will Rogers has been totally neutered by this offense. So you can't even say that the quarterback matchup, which would be so, should be so clearly favoring Mississippi State. I don't even know if that's the case anymore, just simply because they don't know what they want to do. Uh, so at the end of the day, yeah, I, I think that, you know, this is one where we talked about coaching with Nick Saban and everything. This is going to be one of the biggest, one of the biggest, hurts my heart to say this, it's going to be one of the biggest coaching disparities we're going to see all year in the SEC because of how, great Saban is and Arnett's just still kind of figuring it out he's being indecisive whereas Saban hey you can talk about Buckner being the wrong call and it was he was decisive about it he didn't waffle on it he was like here's what we're doing and I feel like when you have that hesitation as a leader your guys start to kind of feel it and we're feeling that hesitation from Mississippi State right now and I think Alabama is going to completely capitalize on that the only thing I wonder about Will Rogers has struggled obviously against Alabama he's he is part of that that stat of not having yep. a passing touchdown against Bama since 2014 the only thing I wonder about what if it did actually click for him in that game against South Carolina what if it did in this offense he figured out and they figured out the best ways to be able to use him what if they just said you know what this is actually the way that this system is supposed to go Tula Griffin looked awesome and, and mm -hmm. that was Obviously, a big reason why they were able to stay in that game. What if all of a sudden we see him processing, and instead of Bama pinning its ears back against the one-dimensional offense that Mississippi State has run previously, obviously with Will Rogers in these games, they have bounce, and they keep them on their heels a little bit. I don't think that happens. Okay, I'm not, I'm not predicting that. But if this does end up being a how-do-you-like-me-now game for Zach Garnett, and he does something that has not been done, has not been done since Sylvester Crew. Mm -hmm. That's what we would probably say is, wow, Will Rogers went from looking like he was on a wasteland running this offense against LSU to now consecutive weeks where, man, this this is this is working out. Maybe Will's pick of Kevin Barbet in the offensive coordinator draft was totally justified, some people would say. It's it's not zero percent. It's not zero percent, but I don't feel particularly good about it. I think that's fair. Yes. And I, I meant to say this, of course, last win, 2007, the Bush administration, who could forget? Let me give you a top five billboard to hot 100 from the last time the Mississippi State Please beat do. Alabama. Yep. Number one, irreplaceable by Beyonce, timeless. Number two, umbrella by a young upstart named Rihanna. Uh, the Sweet Escape by Gwen Stefani featuring Akon. That's Four. a banger. Oh, yeah. Big Girls Don't Cry by Fergie. Heard of her. Definitely aging gracefully. <laughs> Fifth, buy you a drink. Shouty Snapping oh. by T-Pain featuring Young Jock. Oh, wait, let me give you a bonus. Number six, Before He Cheats. Well, I'm so glad you did that. There is a commercial right now on radio with Buy You a Drink as I, I think it's like for, what is it, for like paper towels? Or something? I don't even know what it's for. Every time it comes on, 
I just, and I'm flipping stations or something like that. I just pray, please let buy you a drink actually be on and not this Mm -hmm. stupid commercial because that song, buddy, that song plays anytime, anywhere. It is gone. That went from being the probably the most over. It's not the most overplayed song, but that song was everywhere. Two thousand seven. Okay, that, mm-hmm. like that song was on our morning baseball mix when we're getting up at five o'clock in the morning and we're hearing that song three times for a morning baseball practice for high school when it's dark out in late February and we're listening to that song on repeat and it was all over the radio and all. And now I can't get it unless it's on a stupid commercial. <laughs> What's up with that? Just plug in your iPod. Use Bluetooth. Why are you listening to the radio? That's your own fault. I know, right? That's I, I listen. To, I, I do listen to that a lot. But every once in a while, you're kind of just like, all right, I'm only going to be here for like five minutes or something like that. I don't want to get mm-hmm. this fired up. I don't need to dig into something. Or if I've got like Claire in the car, so it, you know, you just you just never know. Claire could hear buy you a drink, and that'd be perfectly yeah. fine. Ah, oh, you just took me back to a simpler time in life. Will you really did? Good. And, right. and now it's impossible to hear that song is how long has it been. You, you better believe I'm going to go listen to that right, right when we get off of this. 100%. See? Lock of the week. Let's do it. There you go. Thank you, Mike Elko. Getting me back to 500. Mm-hmm. Two and two on the year. Duke dominated UConn. Never a doubt. Dan Orlovsky did not walk through that door. I am so happy for Mike Elko. Duke is hosting college game day for the first time. So happy, in fact. I'm taking Duke again. We're running it back. Duke plus five and a half against Notre Dame. Duke has made opposing quarterbacks look real bad. Real bad. Fourth in the country gets the pass, but first in yards per attempt allowed. It's like 4.4 yards per pass attempt allowed. In the year of our Lord, 2023, that is a feat. And, by the way, they rank first in power five in rushing touchdowns. They run the football. They play great, great defense. They have a smart... Uh, talented quarterback and, and they're able to do things that teams at that at that place typically have not done and they have imposed their will on teams and that's what I like I think if Notre Dame wins this it's a thriller so that's that's why I like that there's at least five and a half there if this was like two or three I'd be like yeah not so much Notre Dame in road matchups against AP top 25 teams in the playoff era I was curious about this so I had to dig this up they're four and 11 in those spots but if you dig a little deeper Look at those four wins. 2015 Temple, 2017 Virginia Tech. They went on to have a losing record that year. So, yep. again, ranked at the end, very different that. than ranked at the time of the matchup. 2020 UNC with very limited fans in attendance. So, we call it a road game, I guess, but how much is it? And then last year, 2022 Syracuse, a team who was Basura in the second half of the, of the season, finished 7-6. and six. Notre Dame on the road against a team that's actually good. Duke's actually good. I think Duke's actually good. So Duke plus five and a half. We are getting over 500 this week. Yeah, I love this pick. This is obviously the Brian Kelly coaching tree bowl. Uh, who's going to get Ooh. the congratulation text. That is, uh, that is very uh, wanted because Brian Kelly's positive like twice a year. Sure. want him getting the text. Um, but yeah, I, I love Duke and what they've done. You know, they really handled UCF in that bowl game last year. And that genuinely feels like, Mike Elko is just, that feels like an unwinnable job at Duke for so many reasons, right? I mean, private school, the kind of regulations that Brian Kelly tried to get get away from in terms of what type of athletes you can get. Because they'll make exceptions for the basketball team, not so much the football team. We saw that whole meme about like the the professors, like, uh, oh, you still got to do your homework. So yeah, the fact that Elko has turned that situation completely around, I mean... 
I, he is going to be on the short list for a ton of jobs and you know, he might even stay there, you know, another year or two, but I think he's already pretty much written his own ticket. So yeah, I think this is a little bit as funny as this sounds out loud. I would buy Mike Elko over Marcus Freeman right now, simply Ooh. because Elko has done it quietly. And like, I'm sorry, but if you're a defensive mind, I know I said this last week, they're both defensive minded guys. If you hang your hat on defense and the biggest play of your career, you got 10 dudes on the field twice. You can't be a better, the better defensive coach out of these two. I, I agree. And, and now that you phrase it that way, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, Mike Elko is the more accomplished coach. He yeah. is the more accomplished coach as, as a defensive coordinator, as, as as a head coach so far with what he inherited. That's that's a really good point. Drinking game. If you're if you're one of those people you watch three hours of college game day, drink every time they reference Duke basketball. Just do it. Yeah. Okay. Reese Davis's son went to Duke, played baseball there. They're, they're going to have some Duke basketball references. There is no doubt about it in this one. They might just do it at Cameron Indoor. I have no idea where they're going to be set up, but wouldn't surprise me. Very easy. Wow, that's that. like the only honest Alabama Duke family in history. <laughs> right? Root for Alabama, Alabama football, Duke basketball, uh, Yankees, Lakers. Yeah, no. I just I just like the, the energy that they play with. Totally. Yeah, you know. All right, let's kick it to Brandon Copeland. Probably the top 1% of smartest people I've had. Uh, to interview on the show. Yeah, probably probably up there. He is well on his way, in my opinion, to becoming a, a fixture in the NIL space on the player side. Very unique thing that he is embarking on. Uh, we dug into his 10-year NFL career as well. So here's Brandon. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is former NFL linebacker and co-founder of Athletes.org, Brandon Copeland. Brandon, uh, I've got a lot that I want to get to with you, but let's let's start with that. This this new venture that you have embarked on, Athletes.org. It is a free membership organization that's open to all athletes. Reading the the Ross Dellinger piece that he wrote on this a few weeks ago, you essentially wanted to create a college version of a players' association. So, like, what kind of separates this from a true players' union? Yeah, I think that, uh, well, one, thank you for, for having me. I appreciate you you giving me the opportunity and platform to, to speak today. And um, when it comes to athletes.org, I think that, one, um, obviously, as you look at the college athletic space, uh, in my opinion, and I'm obviously I'm biased, but I think that a lot of administrators and the NCAA will tell you is like revenue sharing is only, it's, it's inevitable. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I think that um, ultimately, uh, athletes need to understand and organize their voice, not even just for collective bargaining and um, to negotiate and to speak into the future of college athletics, but also because it's just the right thing to do. And, and building a community and building a, a, a place where you can be mentored by alumni athletes from your school. Um, again, there's just so many benefits to what we've built with athletes.org. But one of those major benefits is the fact that now we can help um, athletes organize and speak into the future of college athletics. Do you want to be an employee? Do you not? How do you feel about this whole conference realignment thing? How do you feel about flying across the country during the middle of the week when, and when you know, you're supposed to be a, a student first, so to speak? And, and again, I don't think that we are, I want to be clear that, you know, this is an extremely polarizing subject, extremely polarizing topic, like uh, a lot of things in the world. Uh, athletes.org, what we're trying to do is we're not claiming we know the answers. We're just getting the athletes together. And we're doing this in a way that's giving them a lot of value first um, so that we can actually have productive conversations and collaborative conversations with those that 
sit at the collegiate athletics boardroom table. I think 2020, even maybe even more so than NIL itself, kind of set the stage for this, for, for players to want to have a voice. If you think back to what Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields were doing, just to try and play football in a, in a safe way during that COVID season, how, how much do you think that kind of played a part in you guys wanting to have something like this where athletes do feel like they're heard and it's not just a matter of working through back channels or, or, tw- or tweet, you know, throwing something out there on Twitter to start something like this. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, you know, like you said, 2020, I think it helped speed up um, a lot of things. And obviously it's a pandemic. There's a lot of negative things that, that happened during that time. Um, but I mean, you just look at the world and how it's grown since then in terms of business, in terms of communication, in terms of us being able to sit down and have this conversation like this, right? And even before 2020, I mean, you you saw athletes, um, athletes have always wanted to have their voice heard, right? Um, It's only become more acceptable over time for you to be able to have a voice and take a stance on certain subjects and issues. And I think that now when you, 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 pour into obviously this particular topic of um, college athletics and um, TV contracts and revenue sharing and all those things, right? Like uh, the time is now for college athletes to, to unify and to, again, just have their voices heard. I don't think that, you know, what we're, what we're organizing here is something extremely polarizing. It's just, Hey, like, I think, I think we deserve an opportunity to, to speak our mind and speak our opinion. And I say we, I even shouldn't say we. This is for athletes, by athletes, and specifically, I'm the old, washed NFL player now. Um, I, I want to make sure that I am handing the ball off to uh, the next generation and leaving them in a much better predicament than I am, than yeah. I was. And and for those who, who don't, don't know, this is a nonprofit organization. So it, it's yeah. not like this is some, like, massive scheme to to get money out of athletes during NIL and what are the the services that that's offered up and you know you've you talked about financial literacy on Good Morning America for crying out loud it's like it's something that obviously you you've spent a lot of time digging into uh as a player now in the space that you're in but the ability to hire a lawyer pro bono to look over a contract, an NIL contract, is a nice, unique wrinkle that athletes.org is providing. Have you seen horror stories with this like playing out where, man, if you had just hired a lawyer for five hours, six hours <laughs> to look over a contract, you probably could have avoided something like this. Yeah, man. And unfortunately, I shouldn't even be laughing thinking about it because, I mean, it, it is truly a horror story. And I think that, you know, when we started – athletes.org it's it's um yes there's this opportunity here that is a revenue sharing and being able to help athletes organize their voice and talk through that but first let's just give them value right like let's just create this tool that would have been really beneficial for a younger version of myself to have um as an athlete i'll get i'll get back to your point here i promise you right but like as an athlete you know you have the pressure and, and I'll talk about me myself from 2013 coming into the NFL as a wide-eyed rookie you have the pressure of trying to learn a system be a pro learn a career and then everybody also expects you to be some phenomenal business person right and to know how to vet people and know who's real and who's fake right and and while I was fortunate and I've made my I've made plenty of mistakes I've made my own mistakes right in business and, and in judging people and their character um 
while I was fortunate to have a background of mentors and relationships from the University of Pennsylvania and interned on Wall Street for multiple years and things of that nature, like, how do you digitize that and give that to other people? How do you digitize these relationships and these partners, these connections that want to help people and give it to all athletes at scale? And that's what we've done with athletes.org. And like you said, one of our our features is we give all of our athletes access to a pro bono attorney network. And so they get five hours of pro bono services for, for any contract that they want. So whether it's NIL or whether it's them closing on their first home, right? Like whether it's looking at a, a lease agreement, right? Because yes, we're focused on college athletes, but we call this a locker room for life. It's not once you take that jersey off, after your last game, we're going to throw you away and get rid of you. No, you're a part of this locker room for life. And there's, it's just the beginning of your, your, your journey because athlete is just a piece of your identity. And so uh, we have free background checks. We have free second medical opinions. We have brand consultants and all of these people and these partners at, at some very well-known firms have literally said, Hey, this is important enough for us to invest in the development of athletes. So before we ever charge you anything, we're going to give you hours and pour into you because we understand that if we can impact you, then we can impact the world. Because compliance, compliance departments, they can only do so much. You know, there's yeah. only so much that they can sift through. And even though there are programs across the country that have obviously poured resources into being able to, to try and make sure that their athletes aren't getting screwed. It's nice to be able to have that knowing, Hey, this is, this is something where if you are going to be making serious money, not just, you know, a couple hundred bucks from a local restaurant or something like that, then you do have means to a resource like that. Um, a horror story with NIL that is pretty well documented at, at this point, but how familiar are you with the, the Jaden Rashada situation and the way that played out at Florida? Pretty, pretty familiar, unfortunately. Yeah. How could, <laughs> so how could athletes.org have, have maybe allowed him to, to navigate something like that? Yeah. So one, when you come into our platform, again, as you mentioned, it's free, uh, but you have a number of features and resources. You have Q and AI, you can ask any question anytime. You have your expert network. We also have an agency and collective registration and verification process. So um, in the case of like Jaden Rashada, he would have been able to come in to our platform, he would have been able to look up his collective, the Gator Collective at that time, and he would have been able to see information on them and whether they operate at a certain standard. Um, and if they operated at that standard, he would have hopefully, you know, felt comfortable going and doing business with them. And if they weren't in the portal and they hadn't verified themselves, he would have been able to ask more questions and maybe maybe that he would have done it a bit differently. I mean, I think the tragedy in that story is the fact that, you know, athletes right now, because of NIL and because of, of just where college athletics is it, as a whole, is you're really going pro earlier. And so, unfortunately, when this young man, you know, with me, I'm 18, 19, I'm at, I was at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, listen, the, the Bama of the Ivy League, let's go ahead and put it out there like Love that, it. right? Um, <laughs> but, but... When I was there, I was able to focus on football and me being able to focus on my craft got me to the NFL. Now you, you're in a place in a situation like this where your mind is turned, you're, you're not focused on what you grew up loving to do. And what effect is that ultimately having on this young man's career? And what we want to be with athletes.org and similar to the way that you mentioned with the compliance directors, we just want to be a resource. Like there's 
only so much that one person or one school can do for all of their athletes. And if we as athletes.org can help you scale that and scale these tools that ultimately protect your athletes, giving them free background checks in their hands, things of that nature, then it, 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 in my mind, again, I'm biased. It almost seems like a no brainer. Um, the final thing I'll say, Connor, you know, we, we were having, we've been extremely collaborative about this thing. This is not Brandon Copeland and our the athletes.org team just in a, a basement together, just creating our own intake forms and verification processes and stuff. We've been collaborating with top agents and administrators around the country and, and building councils for this. And one thing that one of our agents said is like, you know, sometimes, you know, athletes just make, they make bonehead decisions. You're like, why did you make that decision? Right? Like what, what happened? And I'm like, well, that's what you want athletes.org in your athletes' hands for, because sometimes athletes are faced with decisions that they don't feel comfortable going to the compliance director to talk about, or to the AD of a school to talk about, right? Or to an agent. And you want them to have a discreet way where they can feel, get their questions answered by really amazing professionals who are willing to invest in their development. And, and hopefully, that prevents you from ever being able to say, why that athlete make that bonehead decision, right? That's the goal here is to cut out the horror stories and to give athletes more agency in the form of their pockets. Yeah, an unbiased third party. I think everybody wants that in certain elements of, of their life to be able to weigh in on important decisions. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're going to be able to provide. Uh, what's, what's the future of NIL in the 2020s? Is, is it simply pay for play with organizations like <laughs> yours that can protect and perhaps empower student athletes? Yeah, I mean, honestly, who knows, right? Like, who knows? This thing, it could end up, is the moment I think it's going to end up one way, it something comes out and a bill comes out and maybe it, go, it, could go, it could go that way. I think that what we are, are focused on is the, it is inevitable that revenue sharing will happen. It will have to happen. This is one of the few businesses in the world where, again, the employees aren't necessarily, or the people that are generating and helping generate the revenue aren't necessarily getting compensated for it as, um, you know, bumps in everyone's salary continues to rise. Now, uh, what we are doing is we're focusing on just providing value to athletes now and then also maintaining our flexibility to be able to help guide them into whatever that future looks like, whether it is unionization at some point or whether it is just creating the chapters, which we've created, uh, to be able to help with the different agreements that may come from uh, the entire revenue sharing model. Yeah, I, I think that there are probably a lot of people listening to this going, you know, I'm I'm fatigued on NIL. I, I'm tired of hearing about it. It's not something that like when I see a headline related to it, I, I avoid it. And I kind of get it from a fan's perspective. I've been thinking about this for the for the last couple of years. What should a fan be rooting for with with NIL? Hmm. Because it's obviously different school to school. But is there a thing overall that like big picture, if you see this headline as a fan, you would think oh, this is good, like federal legislation, oh, that's good. Oh, we're actually going to have a breakaway from the NCAA and there's going to be a separate organization that runs NIL. Like what's the yeah. best outcome for a fan consuming this sport as it relates to NIL? Yeah, I, I can completely understand the exhaustion with the the whole NIL uh, mantra. I think that, um, you know, the simplest way to think about NIL is it's just a marketing deal. It's the same marketing 
feel that your favorite NFL quarterback does is the same thing that these college athletes are, are getting an opportunity to finally do. And I think that, you know, as I, if I, me, right, like taking away the different titles of things, the legislation and all those things, I think for a fan, you should want to see the athletes on the field winning and incentivized to win the same way they are at the pro level. So when their team decides it goes to March Madness and when they go to the elite eight and the final four, right? Like they should win and that should also affect them financially um, the same way it affects the university and the coaches and everyone else. Everyone else gets extensions and, and, and you know, parties and celebrations and things of that nature. And the kids, we go back to class. And so I think that at the simplest level is you want your athletes to win the same way everyone else is winning. Okay, so I, I want to talk to you about your background because some people might be listening to this, you know, wondering what makes you such an authority on such a topical yeah. issue in college sports. You played at Penn, you teach there now in, in the offseason, which I always think of as the school from Boy Meets World, if we're being 100% honest. <laughs> um, but you, you played 10 years in the NFL. You actually announced yeah. your retirement from the NFL two days before athletes.org launched. What, what did you witness in the NFL when it came to players kind of managing their money, either recklessly or alternatively? the players who are really, really good about budgeting and it kind of made a lasting impact on you? Yeah, I think that, you know, my biggest goal, um, so, you know, to frame it up, 10 years, as you mentioned, undrafted free agent, fired maybe six times within my first year in the NFL. So, like, it was always, what can I do? One, the NFL and this whole dream and vision of playing 10 years was like, you know, that was a, a real big dream, uh, you know, in 2013. Uh, but ultimately, it was always like once I got my shot and I got an able, I got my foothold in the NFL, it was like I need to do enough now that can propel me the rest of my life financially. Right. Like, um, unfortunately, I've had teammates, I've had friends, I've had people who've reached out and they're maybe a few months out of the league and they're reaching out asking for help financially. And I know that they've had bigger contracts or a bigger signing bonus or drafted, right? Like I know that they made more money during their time in the league than I have, right? And and while athletes.org is not just about helping you manage your money properly, uh, what I have seen is there's a crazy amount of pressure on you as an athlete, as I was alluding to earlier, to get this right, right? To not mess this up. So you're not talked about negatively in the world. And then when you go home, there's pressure to take care of your community and give back and all these things. And like, so what is the way that we can download all these blueprints from current and former pro athletes to just keep into a locker room that you just give blueprints or what we call playbooks to the next generation? So now you increase the next generation's chance of getting it right. Because if you increase their chance of getting it right, that has generational wealth impacts. They get the chance to take care of their community. They get a chance to take care of their family. And so to, to get back to the root of your question is, I've seen a lot. I've seen it all. I've seen great stories. I've seen terrible ones. Uh, one thing I'll call out that always stuck with me in 2015, my teammate Theo Riddick said, hey man, like, the dream is his biggest goal at that time was I just want to, when I leave football, I just want to at least have a year 
that I don't have to go work and I don't have to do anything. Right. And that sounded a little crazy at that time because I'm like, I'm, you know, you make a pretty decent amount of money, but having a bunch of people reach out, you realize how hard that actually is. And um, from the guy who retired, you know, and then two days later launched the company. Um, <laughs> for me, it's not necessarily about the financials at all. It's more about what would be a, a gift that a younger version of myself would have loved to have had because I know that ultimately if I would have had athletes.org earlier, the contracts would have looked different, not the on the field contracts, right? Like, but the off the field contracts, the marketing contracts, we've been asking for different things. And again, those small details and decisions are the difference between generational wealth. And if I only would have known. Did Belichick offer you any financial advice during the time you spent in New England? <laughs> no, no. Belichick just kept uh, trying to compare my play to Lawrence Taylor um, in the negative way and just said, why can't you do it like him? Why can't you do it like him? Hey, Bill. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know if you looked at me lately, but I'm not Lawrence Taylor. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> that, that's got to be the absolute worst, though, when you're in a spot like that. And you're like, all right, this guy has seen so many great people at the position come before me. And even if you want to get into the, the Teddy Bruskies of the world and, you know, the, the Vrabels and guys like that, you come into that spot and you're just like, yeah, I know I'm going to be up against it every single time. Do you, did he pay you a compliment during your time? I got to imagine there was, and yeah. if he ever did, that would probably stand out more than anything you could possibly hear. Exactly. It's, it's a small compliment, right? Like it, it, it's a statement and it's a short statement, monotone. It's, you know, it's a smart play, Pope, you know, and it's just move forward, right? Like it's, that's it, you know, and you you can take it like you just won the Super Bowl. You you, you take that home to the bank, right? That's that's a win. That's a win yeah. in my book. Uh, you were with the Lions when when Matt Stafford got that hundred thirty five million dollar extension. Yeah. Did, did you kind of step in and say like Matt, you know, for the small price of I don't know, like five hundred k, what whatever, <laughs> like I can offer you the financial advice needed to turn that into two hundred million dollars. You're not you're not dealing with a lot of teammates that have interned on Wall Street. All right, like I can take this to the next level for you. Oh yeah, man. I told him. I think he still owes me money. Matter of fact, we need to. And we need everybody to reach out to Matt and send him a DM and say, I think you still owe Coach a, a few few million. But uh, no, yeah, I, I've been uh, I've been fortunate to be around some amazing players and amazing teammates and, and Megatron, you know, Calvin, uh, Matt Stafford, Haloti Nada, Glover Quinn, um, you know, that locker room, Coach Caldwell, Coach Jim Caldwell. I mean, that locker room was a, a really special one. I will tell you this: my rookie year. Um, maybe three weeks into my stint with the Tennessee Titans at that time, I had a, a teammate of mine who saw, I used to day trade while playing uh, my rookie year, which is probably why I was on practice squad. I probably should have been focusing a little bit more on, on, on the, <laughs> the game plans. Um, but uh, came in the locker room. He had saw me in my locker, just day trading over a few days. He used to ask a few questions and they came in the locker room, threw me 20,000 in cash and said, let me see what you do with it. And I was like, Oh, that. And at that time, that was the most money I've ever seen in cash before. I was like, ooh, you know, wow. And fortunately, fortunately, SEC, you can, uh, you know, the, the the financial SEC regulators, you can you can make sure you hear this note, too. I gave him his money back. I did not invest or trade his money um, because I knew that one day that, you know, one, you want to be fully focused before you take on any opportunity like that. So um, I've always um, lended, you know, a, a guiding ear 
um, and a safe space to talk about money with my teammates. But um, yeah, I remember I remember when he he came in threw me twenty grand, and I was like, wow, you you believe in me uh, more than I believe in me right now. Wow, this is pretty funny. <laughs> the most unbelievable thing about that is having to go back tail between your legs and be like, all right, I got to give you your twenty grand back. Like this, <laughs> yeah, this is how this works. Yeah. We can't do it this way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You're lucky they didn't cut me. Yeah, I was in between cuts at that point. If they would cut me, I might have had to run off with his money. <laughs> like that's that's rent for the next like three months. We're good. We'll take care of that. Right. This has been this has been great. Uh, I, I want to get you out of here with a little bit of rapid fire. Just five questions. First thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? Let's do it. All right. What's a what's an NIL deal that every college athlete should reject? Ooh, reject. Um, you thought I was going to say accept, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is a, I'm sorry. You said rapid fire. I got to get you something quick. That's tough. All right. How about a suggestion uh, for you? The yeah, correct, the correct answer to the question is just anything that pays in crypto. That's it. Right. No. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I was, I was really going to think of something like a whole topic of not to, to touch. Right. Um, but hey, I like that one. I will tell you this though: you you can do an NIL deal with a financial firm. Just don't push any financial products or mm-hmm. or securities, right? Like, don't say invest in this company or invest in this or invest in that. Because what we saw with the crypto craze is is unfortunately when those companies, if they ever go bad or ever have any any uh, heat in the news, uh, the athletes or the ambassadors that push them end up getting uh, caught in the crossfire as well too sometimes so okay that's that's a good answer that's that's still i think good advice for for anybody um okay speaking of advice what's the piece of advice that you give every blue chip recruit that's about to get nl nil money kind of just thrown at their face Mm, one don't sell your soul all money ain't good money um and you wanted one piece of advice so i'll give you don't sell your soul all money ain't good money just think about five, 10 years from now, whatever that is, um, are you, is the older version of yourself proud that you accepted that, right? And it could be, doesn't mean it's negative, just making sure that all, all money ain't good money. A lot of, some of these companies um, and some of these people, they, they hand you money and they think they own you and all parts of you for the rest of your life. And that's not necessarily the case here. Okay, so a guy who didn't get NIL money, but may or may not have, but definitely did get actual money. Cam Newton, uh, you spent a little bit of time with him at the Patriots. <laughs> Tell me, please. I know it was COVID, it was, yeah. it was 2020, but it's you know you just never know. Did you at least get to go out with him one time? No. Oh, man, no. I would have loved to, though. I'm not going to lie to you. I would have loved to. But, nah, yeah, no, because of the COVID season, everything was on lockdown. And, unfortunately, he was the first one on our team that got COVID. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, he was the first one on our team that got COVID. That we had to fly out and play the Chiefs. I think on a Tuesday, I want to say it was a weird. It was the first time in the NFL I ever flew out the same day and played a game. Um, so I remember that whole ordeal. But uh, no, didn't get a chance to go out with Cam. Still available though, Cam. <laughs> Call your boy. Call your boy. Cam's got Cam's got time. He can do it now. Yeah, make that happen. <laughs> Um, okay, how much leverage does Caleb Williams have to come back to USC and maybe get a monstrous NIL deal for like $15 million or something if he doesn't like, as his dad was talking about, the team that's that's picking at number one? And, and what do, like is $15 million, like is, is that a crazy number to, to, to think about for one season of a guy who's obviously going to be considered the best, best player in college football coming back? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the cool thing about NIL is he, he does have leverage, right? He does have leverage. And for the first time ever, he he actually can delay, you know, the, it used to be I need to go to the league so that I could get paid, <laughs> right? And now it's like, all right, I can I can chill out here until it's the better situation for me, so to speak. And so um, I think he definitely has leverage. He, he clearly does. And I think that there would be a lot of people who would be willing to try to find ways uh, and to help him market around USC's campus um, in order to stay there. Last one for you. Dumbest financial purchase you have ever made was what? Oh, man. Um, it's close. Um, I, go in, I go through fads of different clothes so i had a dad hat phase um i had a i had a skinny jean phase you know i had a a, a jewelry phase um and my jewelry is like amazon jewelry right the most expensive watch i got is an apple watch so you know then you don't don't hurt me too much but ultimately um the biggest thing as we i told told uh, you, you know, before we start recording here, we just move homes and stuff like that and going through our old home and going through all the clothes and just looking at yourself like, what was I thinking? You know, that that's probably the dumbest purchase. It's always close. That's the, <laughs> nobody ever feels good about looking back at clothes they bought 10 years ago, which is just so yeah. weird. There's very rarely a great financial purchase when it comes to clothes. Ah, oh, that's so yeah. weird. Yeah, very fitting. Uh, Brandon, excited to see what athletes.org is going to be able to do in this very ever-changing space. Really appreciate the time, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Bold and Brash, week five, SEC edition. I think we're going to stick in the SEC. I think we will. Maybe we'll get a little bit outside the SEC. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I think I've said all my predictions for, for the day. I don't have anything that crazy bold other than Ole Miss – Winning is a it's one and a half point underdog. Is that, that that's about it? Didn't get bold with the South Carolina one. Anything bold that comes to mind for you this weekend, Will? Um, yeah, I think we kind of covered everything. I'm super like I've just been really excited or interested by like the top four teams. So let me just do a quick check in, not to like spend a ton of time on this, but who do you think are the top four? Not not factoring in like any of the oh well, this guy's got to play this guy, but who do, who are the best four teams right now for you? God, it's so hard at this stage of the season. <sighs> Because the competition is just not, yeah, it's just not equal, and it's so hard to judge based on that. <sighs> You're putting me on the spot, crap. I'd probably still say that Georgia is the top until we get 60 minutes to suggest otherwise. Yeah. If I'm picking who I think I would pick to win the most neutral site games, LSU would be two. Huh. <laughs> <sighs> Ugh. Ugh. I hate where it goes after that. I really do. Yeah. Bama's three. Um, golly, I hate four. I don't feel good <laughs> about Tennessee just yet. Maybe if Tennessee beats South Carolina by four touchdowns, I'll feel better about Tennessee. I've already said I, I think the winner of Kentucky-Florida will will feel good, but I won't feel as good about them. Um, man. I don't know. I think that's where I'm going to end it. I think that's what the, that's what the the SEC has told us so far. 
Yeah. What about you? I, I, I actually, I, I love that, like, taking this. I was actually talking about the big playoff, but actually I think that question is better with the SEC because you're right. Yeah. I, oh, God. I think, yeah, that's what oh, I should no, have no, no. I think I'm – well, I think I'm right there with you because it's an interesting question, but, yeah, we'll, we'll get on after this. But, yeah, I'm right there with you. I think um, I think it's Georgia and then, like, LSU and Alabama are, like, 1A, 1B. And then, yeah, I think right after that, it's welcome to it. Yeah, I think – I think, honestly, honestly, kind of got to start looking at Florida pretty soon here, but we'll see. Like I see, and there are Mizzou fans who are frustrated listening to this, who are saying, "Why, right. why, why can't you include Mizzou? Is it confirmation bias?" Yes, there's a little bit. Middle Tennessee wasn't great. I've praised the improvement. Love Blake Baker. Think he's a stud. Give me Luther Burden over almost any skill player in college football. Brady Cook taking some next steps. Boom! Every better. single game. Cody Schrader, Fine, young man. Yeah. Would, would want him to date my daughter. Would want him mm-hmm. to. Some have said. That's just really creepy. But yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's 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 slop right now. But yeah, it's yeah. funny because you were like, oh, the team that would win, that would be most likely to win a neutral site. It's like, unless you were to get blown out in a neutral site, they still feel like the number two. It's tough for the conference this year. I hope people know that that saying, I want Brady Cook to date my daughter, was poking fun at what Eli Drinkowitz said. At, at, and, Drinkowitz, yes, 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 yes. yes. I, I need that context like, to be known. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> listening to this out of context is like, you want your four-month-old daughter to date Brady Cook? You psychopath. No, no. Okay, But that's the version of what Drink said, which is still weird. You're, you're memeing Drink, not yourself. Yeah, still weird. Yeah, okay. All right, Bold and Brash, uh, Saturday Down South podcast on Facebook. A lot of great responses here. A lot. We have... Yeah, we're not going to get to all of these, but we got some good ones. Let's start with this mm-hmm. one. Let's start with the Kentucky one. Adam Stockton says, Kentucky's defense slash special teams scores more than Florida's offense. I think that would take two touchdowns. I think it would. I don't think Kentucky's pitch is shut out. I don't think that's happening. But that's a good play because of what we talked about before. Kentucky's defense slash special teams, four touchdowns this year. They've yep. been excellent. They have helped get Kentucky's offense through some of these very bad stretches. If Florida's offense is sitting like, oh, here, here's what I didn't think about. Barry and Brown kick return and then a safety. And then Florida mm. scores one touchdown. There you go. That. Mm. Okay. That's on the table. That's on the table. That's not that bold. I like it. Andrew DiGiacomo says, Ole Miss against LSU, rinse and repeat from last year. Ole Miss keeps it close until halftime. LSU holds Ole Miss scoreless in the second half and wins by three scores. Technically, they won by four scores last year, right? Yeah, 45-20. That's crazy. I did the scoring difference, the scoring margin of how different Ole Miss and LSU have been against Power 5 competition since then. Pretty bad. It's pretty bad. It's like, it's Ole Miss like minus 53 or something. And LSU is like plus 73. I want to say it's something, it's something like that. That made me think, wow, two teams that have just gone different, very different directions since, since the break in death Valley last year. Yeah. And you hope that LSU's DBs can wake up and this is like the game they need to wake up for, because at the end of the day, this is like not that good of a football team if the DBs play the way that they did uh, the other day. I mean, if you're just hoping that the other team like uh, pukes on their shoes and randomly fumbles because you can't even defend two separate first and twenties with your defense, not in a good spot. So yeah, like I, I, I will say that like if LSU comes apart, it looks like that, but hopefully this is the game that like Brian Kelly starts screaming at people. We need, we need chill Brian Kelly gone. We need angry Brian Kelly back for this game. Yeah. That, that would be huge in the second half of this one. The Ole Miss fans would be not pleased if Lane had that that happen again in this matchup. 
Who, Michael Darks. Uh, battle to who will score a single point in the second half of a football game. Hey, if Lane, if Lane gets a field goal up in the second half of this one, it's it's a win. It's progress. Mm-hmm. Four trips to the red zone they had against Alabama, 10 points. Not going to work against LSU. Just saying. Michael Dark says, Connor will have a bunch of nice things to say about Mike Bobo after the Georgia win at Auburn. Never. It's very bold because even if Georgia's offense looks great, Michael and listeners of the show know I've got to bank my nice things to say about Mike Bobo in the event that I lose this bet of Georgia winning a national championship with Mike Bobo as the OC, or I think it was top eight scoring offense in college football. If one of those two things happens, I have to say something nice about Mike Bobo on every single pod in the offseason. So the odds of me just unloading four from the chamber about Mike Bobo, not great. Maybe some positive things, but it it probably won't be specific to Bobo. I can't go there yet. Okay, yeah. come on. That's we're in September, buddy. Like we have plenty of time if that's going to happen. I, I that's not an anti-Bobo take. That's just being smart and knowing that it's a long off season. Can't be wasting those opportunities. Okay. Yeah, I love how we've hit this point in the Bobo cycle where I go out there for the South Carolina game. I'm watching fans scream at other fans about Mike Bobo. Well, one guy's like. Gosh dang it, Bobo, get out of there. And the other fans are like, hey, be respectful. This is our team. We got to root for him. And then now they're all like, Mike Bobo's God. I don't know what you're talking about. It's like the infighting. It's like they want to put a little tarp over it and then be like, we're all the same team. But in reality, you know, after two bad drives, you guys are more anti-Bobo than we are. <laughs> I agree. And I think Auburn's defense is pretty good too. So if, if they put up 35 points, yes, it would be an impressive performance from the Georgia offense. And I will silently, very silently praise a certain Mike Bobo. Christopher James, LSU defense, two picks. Oh, buddy. If that happens, the Jackson Dart stats, they will be updated. They will be shared on the Sunday pod that we do. Who would be your best bet to get two picks for LSU? Uh, Lady Luck. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that Deuce Chestnut had a nice one in the first game. I mean, that's the funny thing is if LSU's defense looks good, it's going to be that like 0-9 Saints super turnover happy defense. Because like I guess I don't think they're shutting anybody down. So that's actually, LSU's defense being good is not we're holding guys under 100 yards passing. It's like, oh, we have three sick turnovers and we gave up 300 yards passing. So yeah, I, I, I think Chestnut would probably be your guy in that spot. It's a variation of bendo break, right? Yeah. I, I typically say breaking is allowing 600 yards of offense, but some might look <laughs> at it as just all that matters is the scoreboard. That's just me. Yeah. Got to give people full 60 minutes, you know, give people yeah. their money. Agreed. Emery Picker says, Kentucky thumps Florida and takes their number 23 ranking. Um, oh, just swaps rankings with them. I get what he's saying. College game day is mm-hmm. in Athens next week. Mm. That's what he's predicting. Not SEC related. But Colorado has a somewhat somewhat of a bounce back, but still loses to USC 59 to 21. Wow. Um, I think Bold is saying that losing by 38 points is a bounce back because call me crazy. I don't think the internet would see it that way for Dion. I don't. Yeah. Probably gonna have some thoughts about that and about who Colorado was before week four, um, and who they've been in the two games against Pac 12 competition. Uh yeah, look, if USC is out here putting up 59 points against that Colorado defense, nobody's going to be surprised. Um, will people fall off the face of the earth with Colorado if that happens? That's that's going to be um, interesting. I, I mean, this whole thing has been so strange to me. And this sounds so mean and conceited, but I think everyone here would pretty much agree with this. 
it is shocking to me how little people know about the game of football and watching this. Like, and to be clear, like again, one win last season, we thought they'd be in that four or five range. Like, I, I don't, they've done better than that. No questions. They're beating TCU. They're beating like all of this other conference stuff has been awesome. I just people thinking that this team was like playoff bound has shocked me no at way. every stage. This is already a dub, but no, but people are having those styles of conversations like on the internet right now. And there are people with like anti Colorado takes. They're like, they might not even make a ball. It's like, yeah, dude, that's kind of the point. Like, it's not crazy, but yeah, I, I think that like, it's always been about the vibe. It's always been about building something and, and kind of not taking it lying down. So I think that that is still in the cards for them. I mean, you just don't understand the sport. If you think a team is going to go from, you know, one and 11 to being a, you know, juggernaut and beating Oregon and USC. But I don't know. Maybe they can make a competitive with one of them. They did in the first time. Yeah, you have to understand the college football landscape to understand really what what Colorado was still facing. And if you were sitting mm-hmm. there scratching your head going, why is there over-under still six and a half wins on the season after they get off to the 3-0 and start? It's like, okay, you'll, you'll see it play out at some point. Yeah. You, you'll understand. And it's not necessarily a sign that they were frauds or anything like that. It's just a sign that they're still an overmatched team. That's... Yep. That could very much be clear. How about that Oregon post game video that they? Ooh, oh man. man, that was uh, look for a team that doesn't listen to outside noise. They they sure like some outside noise, very much oh, so. Yeah. They're fighting for clicks apparently. Uh, Lord Doyle says Rattler jumps to the top of the Heisman race after silencing Neyland under a heavy storm of French's and nitro line nitro range line balls. <laughs> I don't think if you're Tennessee, you can do that again. I think you, you that's, that's Brother, your one. If you're Tennessee, you can do whatever you want. Logic does not exist over there. I don't know. I think you got to be bringing new, new objects into the fray. If you're going to be chucking things. Um, I was told that Tennessee is the only fan base who, who would do such a thing. Um, and we have not seen anybody do that since. Uh, Laura, if look, if, if Spencer rather goes into Tennessee and, has this sort of full circle type game because that's when this seven game stretch that he's currently on obviously started against Tennessee. And if he beats them again as a double digit dog, we we need to be having Spencer Rattler Heisman conversations if that happens. Okay. And I know that there will be a lot of people who will probably focus more on the Tennessee side because South Carolina's already got two losses. And that's just what we do in the sport. When you're out of title contention, it's you're kind of out of sight, out of mind in national conversations. But man, it like that would be that would be unbelievably impressive because for the reasons that we outlined, I think Tennessee defense has mostly been pretty good this year, and I think that doing so with the limitations that we know that they have for this team, yeah, we we could be having that conversation. Michael Penix, Caleb Williams, probably still going to be dominating that conversation more so than a victorious Spencer Rattler post Saturday if that happens. But still, part of the conversation, hundred percent, absolutely agree with that. Not even ninety five percent, hundred percent. That would be the most like South Carolina and the most like 2023 college football outcome is if like at like seven and five, Spencer Rattler wins the Heisman because we all just acknowledge that he's the best player in college football, but the team is trash. Nine and three is the mark you got to hit. Nine and three is uh, Lamar hit that. Um, There have been a few examples in the past of like guy who's not competing for national championship, putting up ridiculous numbers. What's the, the threshold? I don't. I don't know if there has been. I have to. I, I knew this stat at one point, and I need to look it up mm-hmm. again. The amount of guys who have won it with uh, four pre pre Heisman ceremony losses. Um, so yeah, like South Carolina would still need to have probably a nine and three season to do that. But yeah, if you win at Tennessee, 
you went to Tennessee in the Georgia games in the rearview mirror, you're kind of looking at the rest of the schedule going, oh, okay. All right. That's not totally mm-hmm. crazy. Grant Haney says, with the special teams nightmarish end to the game last year between the Hogs and Ags, uh, and at the request of prestigious Razorback alum and gracious host of the old Southwest Classic at AT&T Stadium, the goalposts are removed and both teams are forced to go for it on fourth down on the opponent's side of the field slash two-point conversion. The Aggies aren't worried because if the game comes down to a last-second play to win, they know they can always count on John James Fisher Jr. and Robert Patrick to save the day. However, none of this will matter because in this game in Arlington, Sam Pittman silences the critics and has the Toby Keith moment that will hey. keep him in Fayetteville. Let's just end with that. Let's let's Perfect. you know what, Grant. That was round of applause. Round of applause. That that is that is how we do it. Um, I don't even know what he was predicting here, but I just loved every bit of that. That's it. That was yeah. great. All right, let's do uh let's end with some lad of the week. I've got somebody that's already been brought up on this podcast, Will. Go for it. Yeah. Devon A. Chan. Not A Chain. It is Devon A. Chan. What happens when you go off for 233 scrimmage yards and you score four touchdowns as an NFL rookie? Well, Peter King asks you how to pronounce your name. That's what happens yeah. to you. You get and to have it, your own name back. Good for you. Good for you. That is loud of the week material right there. People are not going to be saying your name right because of how good you are at football. That is, amen. That That's the American dream right there. Brent Swerneman actually pointed out that that Achan, God, it just sounds weird to say. It sounds so weird. Achan. Achan. That he gave the pronunciation two years ago at a press conference and everybody just kind of stuck with Achan. Yep. Everybody just kind of rolled with that. And Look, announcers are are briefed on pronunciations and, and all that stuff. So, and like, if you're listening to games, you you understand this. Um, my theory is that A Chain is a significantly cooler last name than A Chan. So, oh, yeah, no question. It's like, why why would I why would I change this? People, I don't care if people are calling my name wrong. It's it's cool. It's all, A Chain. Yeah, A Chain. I, I look. It you is, could be the next Joe Theismann. Exactly. Great point, Will. Changing your name, not weird. Changing your name for a Heisman campaign, a little weird, but we get it. We understand it. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong. Devon A-Chan is not as marketable as Devon A-Chain. That's facts. Yeah, that sounds like a message board or some type of a character. Yeah, and and it's so funny because the best nicknames are not given. No one can give themselves a nickname. It's one of the unspoken rules of sports. And this is actually kind of a nickname that's been given. And like I will say, because I thought I I imagined this, but no, this the Texas A and M football account um, quote tweeted like the the vote for the FedEx Ground Player of the Week with with a chain a chain, and they they just Texas A and M football tweeted vote for a chain emoji, and I'm like. So y'all don't know his name either. What is going on here? It's still up. They still don't know. Jimbo went back and forth with it because I, I, I would listen to it repeatedly. I'm like, wait, what? Achen, 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 Achen. Of all the different ways that you could press uh, pronounce this, it's kind of wild. I, I've dealt with this on like a, a much, much, much smaller scale where like someone will pronounce my last name as Ogara, and usually I just don't correct people. When I first started, like doing radio shows and stuff like that six years ago for this job, I would usually just kind of let it slide because I don't want to come off as a jerk. And I figured, you know what? Alvin Kamara, he doesn't care how people pronounce his last name. Why should I? 
I know. He's oh, not no. going to correct people. It's Kamara versus Kamara. Yeah. Is it? It's really Kamara. No, it's really Kamara. It's really okay, Kamara. Okay, okay. But, but, but a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people used to say it as Kamara yes. when he was a rookie and he's first starting out. And he's like, yeah, I don't really care. Like, call me, call me whatever you want. Um, yeah. And so, like over time, what I would do is I would when I would let someone know how to pronounce my name, I would say, hey, it's not a big deal. I get it all the time, but you know, my last name is pronounced O'Gara. And I realized that I should tell people because when I'm saying someone's name, I want to say it right. Right. I, I do. The people I talk to want to say my name right and not just say it the way that they're comfortable saying or the way that they've said it before. Or, I don't know. Like they're never going to know unless they ask or I tell them. And you'll like this. So at SEC Media Days, I went on with Hester and T-Bob and I'd say like, you know, I, I know T-Bob pretty well at this point. But he's not saying my last name very often. You know, like it's just it's Connor to him. And yep. so he introduced me as Ogara, which I had noticed that he's done that a few times that I've gone on with them. And I and I know that Hester knows how to pronounce my last name because I do his Sirius XM show every week. And so after I was off air, I told T Bob, Hey man, like you're good, you're fine, do not worry about it. I just wanted to let you know for future reference, it's Ogara. No big deal. And he felt so bad. And I'm like, I I, I promise I'm, I am not mad. I'm not mad. And Hester's just dying laughing because he goes, I tell him that every single time. And he still does it. And it's just one mm -hmm. of those things. It's like, it's, it's hard to get out of your brain. So anyway, name pronunciations for those of us that do this on air. It's a fun, underrated thing to have to navigate. And I always want to be right because when I hear someone pronounce a, a player's name wrong or something, I'm like, why am I listening to your insights on this if you don't know how to say this player's name? Yeah, just... Oh, yeah. I mean, the most impactful thing I've ever contributed to this world is figuring out that Tua pronounced his own name on an Alabama broadcast one time, taking yep. a video of that, putting it on Saturday Down South. I think it's brought up all the time. Um, but yes, um, I'm, I'm with you. I, 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 we've always been A-Chan -chan stands. A -chan Can I ask stands? you a question? It, what percentage yes. of, of SDS traffic are you responsible for for that story with the Tua pronunciation? Like. Uh, I think I'm the leading source on that specific thing for sure because now it's already gotten into the Spanish language. Is now like now all the Americans have got it and we're literally overseas. Like dudes are in like Baltic languages talking about Tua Tungo Vailoa, um, which is funny enough the only one of those I can pronounce. You're usually the pronunciation guy. You still hear people like there. There is a certain podcast that I listen to that I'm not going to shout out. One mm -hmm. of the guys is Tua Tunga Vailoa. I'm like you're adding an extra syllable in there. Tua mm -hmm. Tunga Vailoa. That's it. Nico Iyama Leava. Okay. We can all do this. We can do this. It's on Tennessee's website right there. We can all just pronounce names correctly. We, we do. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a collective effort. We're all working at towards the same goal. Nobody wants to hear their name pronounced incorrectly. Speaking of guys who have easy to pronounce names, mine, very simple and straightforward and not a guy that I even really like a lot. Uh, but I think this has definitely been his week. Uh, Dan Lanning. Um, I Ooh. think that, and I, I showed that video you were talking about in the work meeting. That's why I like stopped talking about it. Cause I knew it was going to circle back. I showed that in the work meeting yesterday and my boss made a really good point, which was, he goes, you know, what's funny about Oregon is like, they were the, we're playing for clicks team for like yep. 20 years. He's like, they were that team for 20 years. And he's like, so really you're mad that someone else is doing your move. You're not mad that they're doing the move. You're mad that they're taking your move. And which I think is a great point about that whole situation, but that even makes it kind of ring more true. And, you know, I've been a guy who has been more 
I think I've been down the middle on Dion. I love his energy. I love the amount of like the the energy he's brought to that program and how he's made them believe. I love entertainment and I think he's very entertainment. I do think there's some deeper stuff as we've talked about with Dion that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, but I do think with him, I'm talking about like the prime Academy stuff, not like anything like weird and shady that we don't know about, but I, I've, I've been pretty, pretty logical about Dion. I just love to hear the dude talk. I think he's cool. But that being said, you know, if you're going to call your shot the way that they did, uh, and I think them dropping that video did show a little bit of context, which is Colorado players being super disrespectful to them. Yep. And I think that whenever that video dropped, it let us see the other side of, yeah, Dan Lanning is a psycho. Yeah, maybe he's like uh, just straight off of that Nick Saban, Kirby Smart tree where he's like, maybe he's screaming a little bit too much. Maybe he's like in the Scott Cochran mold even. But, you know, when you get your guys up for a game like that and you very much show, okay, this is big boy football. That is not. You can talk all the mess you want. And like, obviously the best part of that is them like saying, you know, we're going to kill you. Like da, 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 da. And then it like just cuts the organs. Guys is like, don't give them the attention. Don't give them the attention. And like, I, I love that because that's an element of, you know, trusting yourself. And yeah, you know, all that stuff is going to be seen as theatrics and it is a little bit over the top. You know, we give Ryan day crap for stuff like that. But at the same time, it's like, you know, when you get your guys to believe that they have been disrespected, when you get that, you know, uh, bullet, bullets and more material, the, the, uh, the yummy rat poison that you want to see. Um, I think that they did a great job responding. And I think that this is going to be a packed twelve race. That's going to be one of the most interesting down to the wire conference races we've ever seen. I'm still rolling with a uh, former, IU great Michael Penix. Um, but at the same time, I think that they definitely showed something and they showed that they're building what is, you know, the version of a version of, right? Dan Lennon is bringing that little bit of SEC culture up there. Um, you know, Tosh, can you give me this guy's name? The linebackers coach, Tosh Le- LePoy? Le- you know what I'm talking about? LePoy? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, he was like Former Bama assistant, yeah. Yep, he's over there. Like you can kind of see with the behind the scenes of like they're starting to get a little bit of that, you know, a version of what we've seen some of those saving systems build when it works. So I think it's really cool. And I think that that was as as dumb as it is that we're sitting here talking about a team that we thought was going to win three, four games, that that was your statement win. I think that at at the time of your Oregon, you got to say, look, enough is enough. All right. We are in this fight with USC and Washington to, you know, other like kind of uh, modern blue blood programs. We are out here trying to make this happen. This isn't your time yet. And I think that was, that was cool. So as much as I love Dion, you got to give credit to a guy who did the opposite of what he did and, and still backed it up. 35, nothing at halftime. That was tough. That's a statement. Dan Lady's a good coach. He's a good coach. He, yeah. He's still, I think he's still figuring things out in game. That gives me a little bit of skepticism. Some of his go for it punt decisions you're just kind of like what 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 are we doing here um yep. and he'll figure that out much like we talked about with kirby in his early stages as a head coach how long until glenn schumann is making those same exact speeches at a power five job somewhere this time next year Please. probably probably Please. i oh i love that guy and, and i mean he might have a little bit more dave Rand in his game from what i've seen like he, he strikes me as more of that mastermind type but i think that at the end of the day i mean they gotta get these defensive minds at georgia man it's not like, fair there's too many I know. of them Right, like it's one thing if Kirby and Muschamp are going to team up and do their thing, but yeah, Schumann seeing seeing his speech, uh, I think it was, it was what SEC Network tweeted out the halftime of the South Carolina game. They're like, mm-hmm. Glenn Schumann already commands a locker room. There's a reason yep. they paid that guy so much money, and it's crazy. I think he's like four weeks older than me or five weeks older than me, which Jeez. is just terrifying to think about. But yeah, that guy's got a, a huge future, and that's just going to be the new pipeline. Is like. Oh wait, do you have total autonomy on this on that side of the ball, Georgia? No, doesn't matter. Here's your power five job, anyways, and you're still going to become a really good head coach. Yeah, Glenn Schumann's yep. next. All right, week five slate is awesome. Hope everybody's able to enjoy it. If you have not, 
leave us a five-star review, subscribe to our YouTube channel, where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS pod, at Sat Down South, at CGO Guerra, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.